detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Snell's Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, Celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and actually tonight, it's not the Phantom Galaxy. This is the first episode of a mini-cast that will be happening within Phantom Galaxy. It'll be a monthly uh, episode that we're going to do on the regular, and this is an episode, a show, that's going to be dedicated specifically to animation the art of animation we will probably go into illustration and comic books and things like that just a little bit but for the most part it's going to be animation of all kinds whether that's stop motion whether that's traditional hand-drawn animation even computer animation we're going to talk television shows we're going to talk movies and we're going to uh get into all of those those different things from disney to anime to pixar and and beyond a while ago i was talking with someone and online and a uh, a good friend and podcaster who we were discussing animation. We said, you know what? It would be really awesome to just do a, a show dedicated to this. So we could, you know, not just expand our horizons in terms of the, of, of the movies that we've seen and the ones that we know, but be able to talk about animation. So uh, it's a passion of mine. It's a passion of his. I want to bring in Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, uh, my co-host for this show. How are you, Dave? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Nathan. And yeah, I, I think, you know what? I, I, I was watching uh, one of the movies we're going to be discussing tonight, and I don't want to spoil it, but I sent you a, 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 a shot of it, or, or and you were like, hey, what, what is that movie? And it was, um, and we started talking about it, and then we just started talking about uh, animated movies in general. And um, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, this is something that um, I'm excited about, because uh, to, to sort of delve into uh, another area outside of the horror genre, um, I'm really looking forward to it. All sorts of animation. I mean, you know, this is one of those things where you just, it's like a, you, you go down the rabbit hole into animation and you realize that there are so many different areas you can get into. Um, and we were just talking about it even off air. You got Saturday morning cartoons. You've got, um, there's so much that we can, uh, that we can discuss here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And we're, I think we're starting off with uh, two great movies and two great shorts tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get, uh, to get into this. Yeah. And, uh, we also have along for the ride, <laughs> whether he likes it or not tonight, is is my regular co-host at Phantom Galaxy, Bill Van Vagel. And Bill's going to join us from time to time. I guess it depends on how he feels after this episode. <laughs> 
I know I got some very interesting uh, texts back and forth while you were watching some of these movies. And I promise you, Bill, that we picked these movies almost in a haphazard way. We were just sort of throwing out initially interesting titles. It wasn't, uh, we didn't know, at that point, I, you had not signed on to join for the episode. So I wasn't specifically trying to uh, trip you out. It just happened to just happen that way. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. You know what? You know, me, everybody who listens to me knows me. I'll watch anything once. So give me a shot at something and I'll give it a, a fair shot. Um, I'm, I'm excited in a sense of it is not a burning passion for me animation, but I like delving into places that are outside of my comfort zone, outside of my box. I like exploring something new. And so my history with animation, I mean, goes back to the mid seventies, obviously my earliest memories would be like Fantasia, uh, you know, the headless horseman and Ichabod crane, the Disney ones, the jungle book I saw in the theater. Those are kind of the ones that first hit you. And then there's like the Charlie Brown's, uh, all their specials and Scooby Doo. Who didn't have a thing for Velma? You know, back then everybody loved Velma. And and <laughs> and as you get into the, you know a little bit later, you know you get Casper the Ghost. And uh, I remember watching Underdog uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And I I remember I was about nine or ten watching Inspector Gadget, and I loved Inspector Gadget and the voice of Don Adams. I thought he was great. And, and then as you get later, you know, as an, you know, I wouldn't say as an adult, but as a late teen, early twenties, you get into the Tim Burton films and you get into those uh, style of animation. It's a little darker, a little more adult, a little creepier. And so there are certain aspects to animation that I really, really took to. There's one that I'm going to make you guys watch. It's a three and a half minute short called the log driver's waltz. It was done by Canadian way back in the seventies of a log a logger going down one of these rapids with his logs. And there's a song that goes with it and it's animated. And there are certain things that take to, but there are other things because uh, I'm sure uh, Nathan will play clips that we were talking about before the show. They could go on for 25 minutes. I don't have a bloody clue what they're talking about. So it's not that I don't care. It's just, I don't know. So in a, in a sense of going through these, I probably won't be on every episode, but I will be on every third or fourth episode. And my eyes will be open and I will be learning as we go. So in that sense, it's kind of like when I watched 2001 for the first time, except now I'm watching animated features for the first time. So bring it on, boys. That, as I've mentioned many times, that's the great thing about your bills. I have like somebody who's super knowledgeable about things, but then who also hasn't watched a lot of the things I love, which is perfect because I have this sort of blank canvas. Exactly. <laughs> that you can just introduce these things to. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And, and Bill, given you, you given us some of your background about the, the shows you watch growing up. That's what we're going to do here in a moment. Let's talk about that. Uh, and we were, we kind of settled on a title for this. Uh, we're going to call this series, the, or this podcast within the podcast, the illustrated fan. And again, we will probably talk here and there. Some of the more fine artists and, and comic artists that inspired some of, of this animation. But the thing I love about animation, it's kind of, you were getting at it a little bit, Dave, saying that you can kind of go anywhere and do anything within it. In fact, it, we kind of lump it as a, as a genre, but it's really more of a, of a, it's not even a style. It's more a medium because there's so many styles within that concept. You can do any genre with animation. And the thing that's, kind of always been impressive or tantalizing to me about animation is that you you can show the audience things that they couldn't see any other way now 
we we've looked at special effects and how far they've come and you see a film like avatar or a film where everything is might as well be animated right but it's now to the point of realism but the thing with animation and even animation that is very simplistic or isn't as detailed it's creating an a stylized universe even if it's about realistic subject matter it's giving you an artist viewpoint that's not the real world viewpoint so the thing I appreciate about animation isn't that it gives us things that are more real. It's that it gives us things that are, in a sense, almost hyper real. They're beyond reality. They're a different way of looking and feeling at things. And sometimes you have a greater sense of emotion in an animated uh, venue. Sometimes you're playing with with thoughts and feelings and themes in some way in a different way. I think one of the, not tragedies, but one of the unfortunate aspects of animation is that while I love cartoons... A lot of people tend to think of animation as only cartoons, or they tend to think of animation as only for children. And as you will witness tonight, some of the films we're going to talk about, they are not by any means films for children. There are some of these that cross the line where you can show them to a younger audience, but they were not made for younger audiences. And I think that becomes especially true when you move back through the history of animation, when when film itself is a burgeoning art form. And you see these ways of expression where people are trying to find ways to depict and show something. So we had photographs. And then as we find our way into making those photographs move at the same time, simultaneously, and even a little bit before, you have people finding ways to take images, paintings, and art and make them move and create some sense of life and fluidity and emotion out of it. And so I think that's a lot of what, particularly tonight's episode, we'll be talking about. Uh, We've picked, I think, some some two features that reflect styles of animation that are a little bit different than what we would expect from a Disney film or something like that. But before we get started, what we're going to do is uh, Bill shared a little bit about his his background and the and the kind of animated films that influenced him. And I'm going to throw it over to Dave, and then I'll I'll go as well. And we're going to talk about it one or two uh, animated movies, or maybe it's a TV show, something that maybe hit you in such a way that really sparked your interest and made you think, hey, there's something here that that gave you either a a vested interest in animation beyond, hey, this is a cartoon, or it's something you, you know, you haven't really been able to shake. So I'll I'll turn it over to you, Dave, first. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, for me, I'm looking back and I'm going back to when I was, uh, geez, I guess five, six, seven years old. TV-wise, um, I remember as a kid when I would get done, I, it had to be preschool because I would be home, uh, you know, early afternoon, uh, you know, watching television. And there were the first thing that would come on would be Felix the Cat. Now, my brother was really into Felix the Cat. He was probably more of a Felix the Cat fan than I was. I really enjoyed Felix the Cat. Uh, but for me, the cartoon that always connected with me was Hercules. The I don't know if it was called The Adventures of Hercules or just Hercules. It was an animated film from the six or an animated series from the sixties, and it was in sort of this this sort of jerky animation, you know, where where it's like cutouts and and the arms would move, where the bodies would stay still. Uh, but it was set on uh, Mount Olympus, and it was about you know the the hero Hercules, and he would interact with Zeus and and everything, and and I love that. I even remember um, going with my mother uh, to our local Pathmark, uh, local um, you know a, a, a supermarket, and uh, and uh, 
you know, you'd put a quarter into the machine or maybe even been a dime at the time. And you'd, you'd get like a, a prize and I got a ring and it was just this cheap little, uh, green ring, but it was my Hercules ring. And I would always put it on. And every time I'd watch Hercules, I'd remember when it was done, I'd go out in the backyard and Hercules would always hold his ring up into the sky and lightning would hit it. And then he would become the, the sort of demigod in the, in the animated uh, film uh, or in the animated series. And that was, that was my Hercules ring. I had it up until maybe five years ago. I don't know where it is now, but I had that ring most of my life. Um, but Hercules was the animated uh, series. Now, remember, it was on like right before um, Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, which is if we ever do a kaiju series, that would be probably my introduction to the kaiju was well, Johnny Sacco and his flying robot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but as far as movies, I know it's when I was. Quick very, question, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Go that ahead. Hercules series. Was it from the 60s? I think it was. I really think it was from the 60s. So the Mighty yeah. Hercules. Is that the, one? the Mighty Hercules. Was, was, was that the one? Hey, Herc! Hey, Herc! Yes, right. The, the, the centaur. Like, hey, Herc! Hey, Herc! Yes, exactly. That's the one. That's the one. Yes. Yes. And it was, this was, I'm talking now, I'm talking like probably 1974, 75. When I was watching this, um, we had a, a station in Philadelphia uh, Channel 48, which is no longer around anymore, that used to show uh, the Little Rascals and the R Gang series. It used to show the Three Stooges. It would show um, uh, Ultraman and, like I said, Johnny Sacco. And it showed this Hercules cartoon. And I loved it. There was something about that Hercules cartoon that I was just into it. And, and, and I just couldn't get enough of it. It was the fantasy of it. It was um, just the setting of it. It was really just not great animation, but it was enough when at my age, I mean, I'm talking about I was maybe five, six years old. It was perfect for me. Um, movie wise, though, I, 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 I'm, I'm almost positive that at some point early in my life, I saw Bambi on the big screen. Disney used to re-release their movies all the time. Um, you know, in the sixties and seventies, you know, some of the earlier films, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw Bambi, but the movie that stayed with me, the one that really captured my attention and I fell in love with, and it was when I was seven years old, my parents took me to see the rescuers and I absolutely loved the rescuers and had, was it Bob Newhart? And I don't know if it was Eva or Zsa, Zsa Gabor who did the voice um, in uh, uh, in The Rescuers. But I absolutely loved The Rescuers. And that's the Disney movie. You know, there's there's been a lot of great Disney films over the years. Probably even better than The Rescuers. Um, you know, like The Lion King and The Beauty and the Beast and, and all of these great Disney films throughout the years. But The Rescuers is the one that I remember sitting in the theater and just being absolutely mesmerized by it and falling in love with it and thinking this is a great movie. And I was, like I said, seven years old at the time. I absolutely love the rescuers. Yeah. I really liked that one as well. I remember at Disney, I, I think for a lot of us, Disney was probably one of those first touchstones because they were doing what you just mentioned. They particularly need in, in the years of VHS is they would release a movie. They would take it out of the quote unquote vault. And mm. it might have a VHS run, 
And then those VHSs would kick around for a bit. You'd see it like on the wonderful world of Disney. I think I ran into a lot of the animated films that way. But because of that, I also feel like I didn't, I, I would probably end up seeing clips of the Disney films more before I would ever see a full Disney feature. You know, they'd end up playing some of the clips on some of these programs and I saw them that way. And then eventually I would get to see them. But one of the big, probably the biggest benchmark for me, I remember seeing a movie and that in about 1985, I want to say. So I was probably about five or six years old. And I'd seen other animated things before. But that was around the time that they re-released Pinocchio. Uh, and it would have been the first time that Pinocchio would have been on VHS for me to, to, to actually see. And that was back those the days of those giant clamshell cases. You know, you go yes. to the video store. And my wife, my wife saw a giant box of all those clamshell like uh, Disney movies. But Pinocchio, seeing Pinocchio, and at that point being six, you know, uh, growing up, I did get exposed to things that were probably a little bit beyond my age. So I was, I was seeing like Star Wars and and Indiana Jones and stuff like that probably simultaneously around this time. I'm seeing what is genuinely probably a more innocent movie. But there were a couple things about Pinocchio that struck me, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that it was done through animation. Is You have that joy of the first time he's walking around and moving, and when he realizes he can walk without the strings, and he's skipping down the street. And you have that joy and that freedom, and as a kid you're seeing this character who's unbridled, and he's away from his family, and he's getting to have the adventure. And then you have the really dark stuff you know, that comes in when the children start turning into donkeys, which is pretty horrifying. So you have you have horror elements in this in this story because then they're shipped off and they're they're sent to the work camps on this island and all of that is scary there's a giant whale that shows up later and there's some terror there and then you bring the story back around and you have that sort of final closure that comes with the fairy tale of of being able to return to the arms of a of a welcoming parent who's going to to bring you back in and uh, the, the kind of like selfless love that's always going to be there. So all these kind of things that register in your mind as a kid, but watching them come to life in a way that kind of abandon reality. I think that really stuck with me. It, it crystallized the emotions greater than if I were watching live action actors with a wooden puppet kind of dance around, you know, it just, there was a freedom to it that made the scary moments stronger. It made the poignant moments stronger. And that just always stuck with me. And I still, to this day, Pinocchio is probably one of my all time favorite Disney animated films. I, I agree. I think, I think Pinocchio is, um, it's funny because the thing you mentioned about the, the, the kids turning into donkeys, my, um, when my son was younger, I'm talking maybe five or six years old, my mother, um, you know, they would, uh, my kids would every now and again spend the weekend over at my parents' house. And my mother had bought all of those Disney movies. And this is going back to like 97, 98. Now they're clamshells. Like you said, those huge clamshell cases that they used to come in. And my son would watch, watch Pinocchio and it just didn't, you know, he it scared the hell out of him. And it was that scene <laughs> with the kids turning into donkeys, you know, and it's funny. I, I don't remember what the book, I remember reading a book about Italian cinema and it was talking, you know, when you talk Italian horror, Italian horror is almost like a genre unto itself. When you got Fulci and Baba and um, all these great um, Italian horror films, uh, Diodato, but in the early days in, in Italy, it was Disney movies that started 
them on the the road to horror, and it was the the Pinocchios and and even like uh, Snow White and some scenes in that. Those were considered almost like along the lines of horror, if if not horror films, then at least horror uh, adjacent movies. Um, in the early days in Ital in, in Italy. Um, and to think that that those films, the Disney films, might have evolved into, you know, to, I don't know that Walt Disney would be really happy to think that maybe some of his films would eventually evolve into Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, Tony, I don't know. <laughs> but it's possible because literally in Italy, in, in this book that I was reading, Disney movies generated horror for a lot of audiences back in the day. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that some of my earliest experiences with horror, like I'll, I remember uh, there were a lot of people that were freaked out, you know, in the Wizard of Oz film by the Wicked Witch of the, the West. She never bothered me because, you know, I look at Margaret Hamilton, I see her in other movies and stuff. and But that witch from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and the lightning yeah. and she's running up the hill and she's got the apple. I mean, that is terrifying. That is yep, pure I, sort of horror. Absolutely. And who can and who can forget um, the Ichabod crane, you know, the, the, yes. the headless horseman. I mean, that scared the living hell out of me when I was a kid. And it's narrated by Bing Crosby, of all people. Yeah. Um, but that is that really is straight up horror um, that that Ichabod crane uh, se- sequence. Yeah. Bill and I were talking with Greg back at Halloween and, and this came up that the the Disney's Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which they paired, I believe, with The Wind in the Willows because uh, uh, the movie's called like Ichabod and Mr. Toad, I think, when they released right. it. Yes. And, yes. And, and and Bill and I were talking and, you know, I love I adore the Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow. And I feel that so much of what Tim Burton does, obviously, he has many animated movies to his resume, but he creates a world that exists between animation and live action, you know. But that scene, there's a long extended sequence in Sleepy Hollow where the horseman is chasing uh, Johnny Depp and all these things going. And I still argue that the scene in the Bing Crosby version is actually scarier. You know, he's got the horse, there's fireballs, you know, surrounding this horse and the the steam coming out of its mouth. And it's got the, the... the pumpkin and 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 the vibrant colors it's terrifying i watched them almost back to back and uh i still think that one's more visceral in some ways not not the overall film but just that one sequence and that's the why all these years later that's the one that sticks to me right away like i i vividly remember watching that scene as a kid and you know when he's when the horse is in the air and the and the the rider doesn't have the head and it's you know the horse is spooked a little bit and I mean, what's it? Forty some odd years later, and I can still vividly remember that scene. There's a reason why. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and and the the other one I want to mention very quickly, and then we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about all these later. Dave, you had talked a little bit ago about like they would always do the like uh, <coughs> Saturday morning cartoons. They'd have almost like a a preview of the upcoming season, you know, of Saturday morning cartoons and they would run them in the evening and your parents would allow you to stay up and kind of watch them because it came on around eight o'clock. It was kind of, you know, it was like a prime time viewing. And they would also do the same thing with like when the Christmas episodes of Rudolph would come on. And so, uh, and occasionally they would have some older cartoons. And I remember Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer, that stop motion and the bumble and everything and that that was also a benchmark for me i remember being really impacted by that animation and the world that that created but 
I saw my first Max Fleischer Superman cartoon that way, which obviously Fleischer did his Superman cartoons in the 1940s. And yet they still had a certain gracefulness and, and style to them that was, was impressive. Even, I mean, and I love like the super friends, but this was better. You know, there was more attention to detail. Did you go, have you guys ever seen any of Max Fleischer's Superman cartoons? Uh, I can't recall. I, I probably have, but to know who it is by the name, no. No, I, I don't know that I have either. Um, for me, the adventures of Superman were, you know, George Reeves, you know, the series yeah. from the, from the 19, was it fifties or I think it was the fifties. Yeah. I, I, but I do, but I, I know that there were, um, that Max Fletcher had done a lot of the Superman cause I think they're in the uh, public domain, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I'm going to put a, I, I think there's some on YouTube. I'm going to put a link to a couple of those in the show notes because they're great. And this past, uh, fall, the the drive-in that we go to did a double feature of the of I want to say it was the Corpse Bride and then they did Beetlejuice back to back and in between they showed two or three of these Fleischer Superman cartoons on the big screen and it was the, it was like an instant nostalgia. The other thing that I remember and I don't know if you guys will remember this. Do you remember there was a video game, an arcade game, and I would always see it in the grocery stores as a kid called Dragon Slayer? Yes, and yes. absolutely. It, Yes, Dragon Slayer. I played that game. I put it was fifty cents. Yeah, you had the it was double. 50 you had to play that game. The double quarter in that one. I'm sorry. the 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 animation was amazing, but I put two quarters into that game, and I remember all of a sudden, like um, I fall down a pit. Uh, there's a snake wrapping itself around my neck, and something else happens, and it goes game over. I said, "Game over." I thought I was watching like a preview. What the hell happened? <laughs> Oh, it's awful as a game uh, because uh, I've actually got it on the PlayStation for the kids. I usually, it was like two or three bucks. And the movements, it's all about just turning to the left or the right. And the movements are so hair trigger that it's frustrating. <laughs> but Don, Don Bluth was involved in the animating animated sequences. And I remember as a kid, I would never play it. I would just watch, have the experience of watching that animation while other people played it. The, the, the dual entertainment of watching the animation and then watching the person storm off, ticked off, like you said, when they, they died before they realized the game had started. And, yeah, uh, that's what it was. But you know what? It didn't matter. Even though it was 50 cents, it was it was state of the art. I mean, when you think of, I mean, you know, I, I remember the first time I went to an arcade. It was probably 1979. Um, from friends of mine went to an arcade and my mother gave me a dollar. And she goes, here's four quarters, you know, and she gave me and my brother a dollar and goes, here you go, go to the arcade, have some fun. And my, and uh, my, uh, my neighbor, you know, my friend's uh, mother drove us up there and I had, a, I had four quarters and I just remember after about 20 minutes going, I need more quarters. Jesus Christ. I need more quarters. Somebody give me more quarters. I don't have, because I was just addicted to them. Um, and even then, though, the, 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 you know, the graphics weren't the greatest. Dragon's Lair was like leaps and bounds beyond anything you'd seen before. So just sitting there watching the preview for the game before you even put the quarters in, it was mesmerizing. As you're, as you're watching this, you're like, I can't believe that this is a video game. I would watch this as a 30 minute series, let alone, you know, forget it being a, a, a video game. This is amazing. The graphics in this. And, and you mentioned the rescuers earlier, and then we're talking about dragon slayer. And of course, 
someone who really, you know, I'm sure he will definitely get an episode or so to his own. Don Bluth, who, you know, yep. his his work didn't really, get, you know, after the like late 90s, early 2000s, you didn't see a lot of his work anymore. But there, he had a pretty um, resonant voice in the '80s, animation-wise. You know, uh, yep. with with animations that were competing with Disney a little bit, that were a little bit darker. But they, you know, they do resonate. Movies like The Secret of Nim, and of course, people remember yes. things like The Land Before Time. And he did yes. The Black Cauldron when he was with Disney, Ooh. and a lot of really good. Uh, I personally think animated films, and it was nice to have something that was a little bit different. And I even really enjoy probably, I think the one that actually bankrupted the studio finally was a movie called Titan AE in the late nineties that I actually really enjoy quite a bit. Titan, Titan AE was actually a good movie, you know, and, yeah. and it's funny you mentioned the black cauldron because that was a Disney film, but it was not your normal Disney film. There was a darkness to that movie, you know, yeah. and I really, I, I thought that, that that was it was a time when Disney was not quite at the top. It's funny how Disney sort of went in waves. You know, it's it's like they they had in the eighties. They were a little bit. They weren't quite at the top anymore when it came to animation. And then all of a sudden, here comes Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King and Aladdin to put them right back on top. And then they start to fall off again. Um, but uh, Black Cauldron. It's considered, it's, it's at a time when Disney wasn't quite at the top, but it's still so cool and it's so dark. Well, that's funny because I feel like I like a lot of the movies in that Disney dip period. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do too. Disney, I enjoy like, Towards when Disney started to fall off at the end of its recent animated reign, its traditionally animated reign. You know, I personally really enjoyed Atlantis, The Lost Empire, and Treasure Planet. I thought those were both very good Disney movies. Yeah, it, and you know what? To be honest, the Rescuers was made at a time when Disney was was not quite at the top anymore. You know, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah. And my and, wife um, loved the animated Robin Hood, and that same kind of thing is true. Absolutely, there's, there's, that's a that's a fun film. The the animated Robin Hood is a lot of fun. Absolutely, and Fox and the Hound uh, with with a very young Kurt Russell providing yeah, the voice, the voice. in that one. Yeah. Now, before you, I was going to say, before we get on to the movies, there's one show that resonated with me for whatever reason, stuck in my head, and I know you two have seen it. And I used to get it on the Buffalo TV channel because it was an American show from the 60s and 70s that still ran in the 80s. And that was a religious show called Davy and Goliath. <laughs> yes, Davy and, and Goliath. Goliath but this kid, yeah. but this clay, claymation-ish cartoon about a boy i don't know seven or eight and his dog and only he could hear the dog and through the uh his faith in god he overcame situations that faith got him through and i mean i remember my mom saying why the heck are you watching this but it was on so i watched it that was the answer. i remember yeah i remember davy and goliath absolutely uh, that was um yeah you're right it was very it was a very religious almost i was it from the same I always get the feeling it was from the the same uh, group that made Gumby. It was art, you know, Cokey. That, art Cokey. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes. It had that same feel to it. Um, uh, but even going back, like you were saying, into the sixties, like um, as a kid, you had uh, what was it? The the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh yeah, cartoons yeah. were really yeah. big and An underdog. Um, like uh, underdog. Underdog. I loved Underdog. I absolutely. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, Underdog was a lot of fun. I don't know what group it was from. Was it from the same group as Underdog, the Tennessee Tuxedo? 
Yes. With yep. Don Adams. Well, I uh-huh. mean, you mentioned Inspector De- Gadget. Don Adams is the voice yep. of Inspector Gadget, but Tennessee Tuxedo uh, was also Don Adams and the, the Go Go Gophers and um, a lot of those early sort of animated. I, I don't know if anybody mentioned the Christmas, the Rudolph, the Frosty, the Grinch, the Burl yes. Ives. That stuff sticks with you. I mean, it's. Not technically animation. I don't know if it's stop motion or whatever. Oh, I think it's, well, no, it, it is. is animation. It, it is. Yeah. 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 But, it's stop motion, and and the one that I I remember seeing the first time it played as a kid was um, the year without a Santa Claus, and that was the one with Heat Miser and Freeze Miser, which for me are two of the the most entertaining uh, holiday uh, characters to come along. I think it was Dick Sean. I can't remember. I think maybe it was Paul Freeze who did the voice of Heat Miser. Yep. Uh, with those songs, you know, that, that they sang Rankin Rank and Bass. Absolutely. And I saw it when it first played, you know, for the, for the very first time. And I, I just, I was like, man, this is, you know, as a kid, maybe five, six years old, whenever, whenever it was that it played, um, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is like amazing. And every holiday season, I would look for those specials. I would look for Rudolph, Charlie Brown, all of those, um, all of those animated seek, yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny though because when you when you had the first one, um, the the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is one of the most iconic uh, holiday uh, specials, you know, holiday animated specials uh, ever to come out. Um, they rushed it into production. I remember watching a, a, a making of. Uh, you know, documentary on that film. And uh, Charles Schultz was horrified with Charlie Brown Christmas. He was like, I hope this never sees the light of day. He absolutely loathed the Charlie Brown Christmas because they're really, if you watch it, there are a lot of errors in that. There's, you know, shirts change color in mid scene <laughs> and, and voices change from one character I never realized, Dave, until honestly, the last time we watched it, because we have it on blue right now, we watched it uh, just a few weeks ago at Christmas time, like on Christmas Eve, and my wife had never seen it before, and I it, I thought I was having a stroke, you know, <laughs> like, the, the, <laughs> like the body of like Pigpen is suddenly like superimposed over like Peppermint Patty or something, like you can pause it and see that they've clearly laid the panels in the wrong places, and they, suddenly it looks like a child is naked, you know, it's like Charlie Brown's not wearing clothes at all. Exactly. I think what happened was they needed, you know, normally to do an animated special, you need like, I don't know, three, four months. I can't remember what the special said, but they gave them like four weeks or something to put this out there. So they were rushing it out. And there are scenes where like somebody's voice is different. The little girl who did the voice for Sally, Charlie Brown's younger sister, um, couldn't even read. Her mother had to read her, had to feed her the line every time. And that's why it's so sort of staggered. Um, and when you watch that special, you realize, you know, if you look at it on a technical level, you're like, this doesn't, you know, there, there are some problems here. There's some problems in it. But yet it is one of the most beloved animated films I think ever made is the, is the Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, because of, there's 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 just something about it. It signifies Christmas more than a lot of other animated films do. There's that sequence with Linus when he walks out and he talks about what Christmas is is really all about to Charlie Brown. That's like perfection. Then he turns 
And he says, that's what Christmas is about. Mic drop and just walks off. Exactly. Exactly. And, but when you're watching it, even as, as flawed as that animation is, and as flawed as a production as it is, there's a perfection to it. You know, there's really is a perfection to that Charlie Brown Christmas that I think resonates with a lot of people that they can overlook the flaws. And now when you watch it, I think what's one of the most interesting things that I saw from that special about the making of is there's only one sequence that was cut from that movie that is not in it anymore. It's at the very beginning when Charlie Brown and Snoopy, you know, when Snoopy comes out on the ice and he catches um, Charlie Brown and Linus in Linus's blanket and he's flying all around and Charlie Brown goes flying into the tree and the snow comes down and it comes up with a title screen that says a Charlie Brown Christmas. Right after that, Linus is thrown into a billboard that had Coca-Cola on it because Coca-Cola was the original sponsor of the Charlie Brown Christmas and they only did it the first year. So that's the only sequence that has ever been excised from the Charlie Brown Christmas is Linus being thrown into the billboard of Coca-Cola. You'd think that they couldn't just fuzzy it up or something. Yeah, right. They could have done something to still see Linus because you're right. You think about it. Linus was caught up in that blanket too. You think you, as you're watching the special now, you go, what the hell happened to Linus? We saw Charlie Brown get thrown into the street. What the hell happened to Linus? His dead body is laying over on the, on the bank. It becomes a much darker film. I was always thinking this. If Dave mentioned, or Bill, you mentioned uh, Davy and Goliath. That's not yeah. the only one. Davy, you know, Goliath, like you said, he was the only one who could hear him. And he had that really weird voice, like, hey, Davy. Like, Davy. <laughs> <laughs> Any day I was waiting for for like Goliath to tell Davy it was gonna it was really okay to kill, you know. <laughs> like... but it was funny. It was at a time when you know I was seven or eight. I was going to church every Sunday, but this was on Saturday, so I'm like, why the heck am I watching this stuff? <laughs> right. You know who kids even hear the gospel from? A really weird sounding giant dog that ominously <laughs> talks to you. Oh, I I had twelve years of Catholic school. Saturday was the only day that I didn't have to deal with religion. <laughs> exactly, and uh, well, and then I remember Mad TV, which was not great, but they did a spoof of it where it was Davy and Goliath, and Goliath died, and Davy buried him in the pet cemetery. And he's like, Guess who's back, Davy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, something tells me if I ever talked to Father Paul about this cartoon, he would have thrown me right out of church. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I guess we should actually review these. But so speaking of weird, demented, animated films, we're going to start our first segment, which Bill threw out the idea of tunes and tea. My tunes tea is long gone from here. Uh, I did have some nice sleepy time honey. Which hey, tea today, Bill? I had just before we came on the air. I had a green tea, a lemon and grapefruit green tea. It was just pleasant, wonderful. Yeah, nice. And as as for me, I I popped the cork on a brand new bottle of Robert Mandavi, um, nice. uh, a white wine. I'm not sure exactly which one. And unfortunately, we're like you said, we're an hour in, and it's already a dead soldier. Give give Jackie a call and see if she'll give you bottle service. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately, she's not here because she would already be shaking her head at me, you know, with her arms crossed, saying, "What are you doing?" (laughs) I'm gonna let Bill, Bill, introduce this movie because I think it would be funny. Uh, basically what we're going to do each time is pick a couple short films to discuss. And we've, we've picked our choices for the short films and actually for the, 
the movies for next episode. We'll announce it at the end of this one. But we wanted to pick a couple. And and uh, Dave and I kind of just, we were as we were discussing this idea initially, we were throwing some movies back and forth that, hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. And uh, we have two that we're going to look at. These are both two I saw in the early 2000s, probably in the 2000. Uh, five two thousand or mid two thousands, I should say two thousand five two thousand six range. The first one is called Nico Jiro Su, which uh, the title when it was released here stateside is a Japanese animated film is Cat Soup, and this is this is in the style of anime sort of, but it's a lot stranger than that. And I'm going to turn it over to Bill to set this one up. Okay, well uh, this is one that the other night when I watched, I was texting with uh, Nathan going. What TF am I watching? Okay. So it's here's the IMDb synopsis. A young anthropomorphic cat goes on a psychedelic journey with his sister in order to save her soul. Well, as, a, as Nathan has kind of talked about, it's an, a Japanese film. It, there's no words in it at all, so it doesn't matter what language it is, you can watch this. Uh, this is one of those films, if you've listened to me on other podcasts, I, I dutifully take notes and I go through and this one I didn't because I soon discovered after about five minutes, I'm like, I'm not going to bother taking long notes. Here's what I wrote down. It's a 33 minute experimental short animated film. It is only about 33 minutes, so it's not going to tax all your time. It's very dreamy. It's very dreamlike. It's about these two cats. I would almost call them kind of like panda bear, cat, these kind of deal. And they're going through these adventures of the perverse, you might almost say. But in a, you know, yet they're still kind of bouncing around. There's like a jovial music to it, yet it gets pretty damn dark. Uh, there's a gory scene at the circus. Uh, there's body parts flying everywhere. Uh, this is the kind of circus I want to go to. I'm not going to bring my daughter, but as an adult, I want to go to the circus because it's just whack um there's an uh there's an odd tough to piece together story like don't try to understand it at one point they're wandering through the desert uh they're riding a elephant that's full of water uh there's elements of cannibalism to it uh they <laughs> they go on a fishing trip and the his friend says, Oh, we don't have anything to eat, and he slices himself in half, takes part of his abdomen out, gives it them to eat, and then he puts it back together. And I'm like, He's a he's a pig, he's giving them bacon strips directly <laughs> off of his body. Uh, you know what? I, I I watched that sequence and <laughs> it's funny because I'm watching that sequence uh with the pig, and the only thing I could think of is Hannibal. Ridley Scott's Hannibal when when uh uh Anthony Anthony Hopkins is feeding oh, Ray, Liotta? Uh, Ray Liotta his own brain. Yeah. That's that's what I was thinking of as I was watching that sequence. Well, and there's one scene where they're sitting around the dinner table and there's a bird that's attached to a string and it's flying around with flames and then when it dies and burns that's your dinner. <laughs> that was genius. Yes. And I was like, it's entertaining, but how sadistic is that? This is not going to be for my five-year-old. There is not going to be watching this. You know, it's it's an odd film. Um, uh, there's a story of, there's a scene of them escaping an S&M looking guy in a mask who's using a sword trying to make them into soup and he ends up falling into the water himself. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's out there. I, 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 profess i don't know anime very well i don't have a long history of it 
I don't know if this is part of the Japanese culture, it's tongue in cheek, or this is just to itself to this film. It's wild. Okay. If you're into any kind of hallucinogenics, take them and watch this. It might help you more because I did it straight and didn't help me at all. So I don't know what you guys think of this film. Well, I, I was lucky enough to, after watching this, there is an eight minute, I saw it on YouTube. Um, Nathan had sent me a link and it's, it's on YouTube. And you're like you said, Bill, it's about 33 minutes. There was an eight minute video uh, connected to this that talked that was by a, um, uh, I guess, a, a regular YouTube contributor uh, explaining cat soup. And I had picked up and I, so I was watching the video when it started. I said, oh, I got that. I got that. But when I realized that this eight minute video was over, I realized I got about 10% of cat soup and the other 90% of it, I missed completely. Um, apparently, and I don't know how deep we want to get into spoilers here. It's a 33 minute, um, and this is a spoiler. Okay. So if you don't, you know, maybe fast forward. Uh, through the through um, this the, you know this next statement I'm about to make, um, there's a scene at the beginning when the cat uh, has this vehicle in the in a pool, almost like a bath uh, type thing, and then gets stuck in the bath. Apparently, according to this video that's explaining cat soup, that cat died at that yes. point, and everything yes. we see afterwards is him in the afterlife um the circus he meets god god is the one who's doing all of these crazy things and conjuring up the golden elephant and the fish and the chair and it's all religious allegory all religious imagery um and then all of a sudden he releases what i can only imagine is the pacific ocean onto the circus uh, that ends up with Noah's Ark and 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 out there with um, the two cats and a pig ends up on this boat with them. And that's when you get into the whole, um, you know, feeding the pig his own flesh uh, and riding the pig in the desert and deciding, oh, let's beat it to death at some point. Um, there's a lot of very strange things happening in the movie. But if you watch this eight minute video, it does. Um, I, I, God, I wish I could give the person credit. I can't remember what her name was, but I'd like to give her credit for this. But it is connected. If you look up Cat Soup on YouTube, this is a video that I'll put the link there in our show notes too, so it's there to the video, and I'll credit. Absolutely. Um, it's it really does sort of help explain what's going on because when I got done, I I figured out at the beginning that um the little cat's sister had passed on. And was being led away by the Japanese equivalent of the of the Grim Reaper. And the young cat went chasing after it and got into a tug of war with the spirit of his sister and got half of it and fed it back into the body. And that's why the sister appears more like, uh, you know, something from a George Romero film through much of the movie. Um, because it's only half there. It's only half of the spirit was put back into this girl. Uh, but there's more to it than that. I mean, uh, you know, and, and I realized I didn't get all of it. I really did appreciate this eight minute video that I watched afterwards. Cause after the 33 minutes, I'm like, uh, that was one of the connected videos. They're like, yeah, I'm going to have to watch this eight minute video of explaining cat soup 
uh, because I think I got maybe 10% of it. And when that video, that eight minute video was done, I said, man, yeah, I got 10%. Might have even only been 5% of cat soup. This is an incredibly out there little movie, and it is incredibly dense at 33 minutes in terms of just, uh, I don't even know if the meaning is there, but just in terms of how much imagery, how many ideas, how many weird, fleeting, random, bizarre thoughts cross the screen in 33 minutes is actually impressive. It's almost enough to make you, you, you feel almost a little dizzy when it's all done because there are so many competing like emotions going on the animation style bill kind of alluded to when he said that like they kind of look like little panda cats they're very cute the animation style is a very cutesy almost hello kitty except they have these big dark eyes these pools that are their eyes that look like you're staring into the abyss and it's staring back (laughs) and but then the things that these little cute animals do like beating the pig to death and it bites one of their arms off as it's being in its death throes. I mean, this stuff is dark. And when they meet God <laughs> and he's sort of this wizard that is causing the, you know, there's a point when the, the magician chops the girl up and then he throws her body parts in the air and spins them around in a hurricane of, of, of limbs. I mean, it's insane stuff. And there is a sort of a through line story-wise. But wow, this is so incredibly strange i saw this in in around 2005 2006 it was shortly after uh i was married we uh we had gone to i go with a bunch of friends i think to an anime convention or something we realized it's like wow this is kind of overpriced the whole place smells like farts why are we putting ourselves through this? And it was kind of like the burgeoning internet, you know, and we're, and all these people and I'm, I'm sitting next to a, 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 an unshaven dude dressed like sailor moon. And I'm just like, there's probably better ways to intake, you know, some of this animation and these sorts of things. And so what we did is we kind of, you know, we, these are days of eBay and the, you, you could go and you could get the, like, um, we didn't know at the time that they were basically bootlegs. You open it up, smells like a rubber fire, you know, and you're like, what happened to this DVD before I got it? But we would sort of try to, we, we got a bunch of people together and we did our own sort of animation festival. We watched a lot of, and not just animation, just movies in general. So we were some Takeshi Miyake movies and things like that. We all got together and watched them. And I remember my wife tried to be a good sport and join me for the first half of the day. And I remember her watching in a room while about 10 of us all watching this, this one particular. And may I ask how many women were there compared to men? There were four, all of them wives. And and, and (laughs) actually at the point cat soup happened, it was, and I just remember as the things are happening in this movie, hearing a small voice next to me say, Oh no, again. And then, and then with a resignation and the next thing, Oh no, 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 not, you know, like, Kind of like uh, <laughs> Kurt Russell in, in Big Trouble in Little China when you know the things are kind. He's like, no, no, don't even tell me. Just I give up. And there, but at the same time, we will turn to each other every once in a while and just say, "Do you remember Cat Soup?" Or Jen will say, <laughs> "You know what happened?" So I think I there's a part of me that really appreciates this movie because of it. It it achieves one of those. Central promises of animation to show you something you've never seen before in a way you've never seen it. And there is a little bit of a story here. There is some weird poignancy. There's a very dark humor. Like 
like Dave says, the little cat in the beginning dies. That's why he can see death come for his sister, because he's having an out-of-body experience. Eventually, his dad discovers his dead corpse laying in the water and manages to revive it. So he kind of comes back a little bit. And that's when he chases right. death. And as Dave says, he stuffs half of the soul back in, but it's not all. So he has basically a little lobotomized cat sister that he's taking through this wasteland and to go to meet God, who is the kind of a demented carnival barker who's just, and, and he summons this thing that's, can I describe it? It's like a elemental water penguin, but it's screaming and there's <laughs> lightning inside of it. And this, I don't even want to say anymore. It wouldn't even matter for me to, me recounting this would be like a six-year-old waking up out of a literal fever dream and trying to explain to you what happened. Like, that's what this is. It's a fever dream. It's beautifully animated. It's based off of uh, mangas by, uh, by an artist named Nico Jiro. So the show was neat, or the, the little uh, cartoons were Nico Jiro. And then there was a whole 22 minute, um, I think they used to do like in the late 90s, they would have little shorts uh, that would made an animated series. And I've seen one or two of those, and they're even more dark and demented uh, in some ways. But this is sort of a, uh, a tour de force of just weird, bizarre imagery. I honestly kind of love it. I wanted you guys to see it. It's an experience. Um, I guess we can give our ratings on these things as we go through. This is, I mean, I could probably go higher, but I'm going to give this an eight just for pure cracked insanity. Sorry, uh, all I was going to say is I'll give this a seven uh, for the oddness, the craziness. It's almost got like a dark horror-ish kind of vibe. I was looking up the director. The director's name is Tatsuo Sato or Sato. And pretty much everything he's done in Japan appears to be TV, TV work, TV series, cartoon, animated series, senior director, that kind of thing. Except for this, really, I think pretty much everything else is a serialized type thing, except for a short in 1992. Um, He did one called uh, Shigo Fumi and Bodacious Space Pirates and, Atom, the beginning, like, I don't know what any of these are, but it appears that he understands formulaic television and your standard 33 minute. And then he kind of just let it all loose in this one. The mighty Adam is um, Astro Boy. I oh, believe. is that? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there you go. So if you like his work, there's lots of it out there. I'm, you know what? I'm going to give this uh, probably an 8.5. I as I was watching it, you're scratching your head. You're saying, what the hell's going on? You know, why are they, why are they beating that pig to death after riding it in the desert? Why? Because its job was done, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably true. Yeah. Um, and why, why is uh, uh, the water from the desert turning into an elephant that's guiding them through, you know, and then they're actually swimming inside of it. anyone else have almost Dolly-esque feel to that? Like, I've thought of Salvador Dolly looking at that. Absolutely. You know, it's absolutely, you know, it's almost like, what was the Hitchcock movie? Um, Spellbound? Yep. Mm -hmm. I think that that Dolly had done some sequences too. Yeah, it definitely had that feel to it. It was definitely Salvador Dolly. And it's almost like the entire movie, um, you know, had that, um, that sort of feel. And then when when God is is eating something and he drops it and time stops because it gets ja- you know gets jammed into the clockworks and time suddenly stops and um, the you know the cats are able to walk on waves of water and uh, just such a bizarre film 
But at 33 minutes, you know, you're scratching your head, but you're still, you can't stop watching. And I think uh, that that was the experience I had. And I think a lot of uh, people would share that experience. Um, It's one of those films where even if you don't know what the hell is going on, it's just so damn interesting that you can't stop watching. You will not be bored. There is always no. a strange... I think Ebert reviewed a movie once he said, I couldn't stop looking because every few seconds there a strange furtive thought found its way across the screen. And I think that's fair to say here. It's probably even it's probably even a better clip than that. It's probably every two seconds. Um, yeah, I was going to say, everybody has watched movies where you can kind of fast forward through YouTube a few minutes and, you know, because you know that you, you can't do that with this film. You, you you fast forward two minutes, it's gone 180 degrees in another You've direction. You've heard the term visual feast. That's what this is. Some of the food might be spoiled, but it's a visual feast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you know what? You're absolutely right, Bill, because there were times I had to go back two minutes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a second, did I really see that? Let me bring this back a couple minutes. Just to make sure that I saw what I think I saw. So I, 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 I was going to say, a 33-minute film took you 46 minutes. Right. So. <laughs> And I, I, the last thing I'll say about this is, and, and I know that we have a lot of um, audience uh, that are also very fond of the horror genre. I Cat Soup is not horror, but it's got enough of that dark sensibility. I think the sensibility that is in Cat Soup will really, if you're if you're a fan of horror, I think you will really enjoy this because it, it particularly like a dark horror comedy. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of weird sort of subversive humor. And, and, and a really kind of gallows, sick kind of humor that finds its way in this in this little short. And it plays with a lot of horror imagery. I mean, would you think that's fair to say, guys, that this this has a, enough yeah. echoes of horror? I think that someone who enjoys horror and, and enjoys surrealistic horror would find a lot to like in this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. As a matter of fact, I think you could, you could say that about um, all of the movies we're going to be discussing tonight. I think all of them have that that darkness in them that um, that even if they're not straight up horror, there's, there's something in each of the movies that I think would appeal to a horror fan. Yeah. And speaking of which, let's move on to our second short film. And uh, this is another one actually that I did end up showing at the same, uh, the same little uh, event get together that I had mentioned a a, a short film. Then it came out in 2005. Dave, do you want to uh, do the introduction for this one? Yeah, sure. I'm not. All right. Uh, from 2005, the mysterious geographic expression of Jess Morello. I see here that um, according to IMDb, looking at the uh, the image, that this was a, an, uh, possibly an Oscar nominated short film. It was. Uh, because, um, and I might even have this uh, set. Boy, I wish I knew that before I watched it. I would have uh, actually pulled out the set to uh, to watch this film. Uh, But looking at IMDb, a quick synopsis set in a world of iron dirigibles and steam-powered computers, this gothic horror mystery tells the story of Jasper Murillo, a disgraced aerial navigator who flees his his plague-ridden home on a desperate voyage to redeem himself. Uh, And that's a a pretty solid, um, uh, I think, uh, synopsis. Uh, Joel Edgerton um as we had uh, you know we were talking a little bit off uh off uh when you know before we start recording joel edgerton is the one who provides the voice of uh jasper morello and um 
it's interesting because I think it's it's almost as if the animated style of this reminded me of an of a feature movie we're going to be talking about tonight, The Adventures of uh, Prince Ahmed. Um, you know, it sort of had that silhouette look to it. I don't know that it necessarily was, but it had that silhouette look to it. Uh, but I was re- I really enjoyed uh, this story. I mean, this is a very interesting world. Um, uh, where it is, uh, these, these airships, uh, that travel in this, uh, sort of industrial society. And the idea is that this, this area is sort of, um, you know, uh, there's a plague that is broken out in the, in this town and Jasperillo's, um, uh, wife, uh, I'm trying to look up the character here, Amelia, uh, is, is a nurse who is dealing with a lot of these patients and Jasperillo tells her, you know, be, be careful, you know, um, before he goes off in this voyage, but Jasperillo has been disgraced. Uh, he had created this device, I guess, a compass, um, to help, uh, navigate, uh, the, these dirigibles and, or the, these airships. I don't know if they're not dirigibles, they're more airships, I guess, than, than they are that, um, but, uh, on his last voyage, something had happened, um, where he made a mistake that resulted in the death, uh, you know, somebody had died as a result of his mistake. Uh, and he's sort of looking, he is looking to redeem himself, but at the same time, they're setting out, um, to, uh, I guess it's, it's a scientific, you know, uh, a scientist has sort of booked this voyage and then looking, um, they're going to this, uh, strange, locale uh to possibly find a cure to this illness or in the hopes of finding a cure to this illness that's that's um rocking this uh this town that Jess Morello uh uh is is from um and I really enjoyed this one this is not long I this one is uh in the 20 20 26 minutes it's just under a half an hour uh but a lot happens in this uh half hour uh, and again, crossing into uh, horror and adventure and uh, the thrillers and, and sci-fi. Uh, there's a lot happening in this um, in this short film. And I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I did, too. I think this one definitely has an homage to uh, Lottie Renninger, who is the the German director and artist who's behind the adventures of Prince Achmed, which we're going to talk about. And I was not actually familiar with her work, but she, she kind of followed uh, some of the Chinese artists and started to create these silhouette animations. And I honestly didn't know about um, her work or Achmed really until you introduced me earlier this year, Dave, when you had mentioned that you'd seen uh, Prince Achmed, but the minute I looked at it, it, I was instantly reminded of this. Uh, and this style, taking that style and then blending it with the computer animation, this is 2005, and they kind of keep it a sort of monochrome, so it's kind of, it has that rusty gold look to the whole thing, which makes sense because mm-hmm. this is a steampunk Jules Verne-esque universe, you know, kind of H.G. Wells meets Jules Verne, and uh, with some Lovecraft thrown in, really, as it, it uh, some yeah. Lovecraft and some Arthur Conan Doyle, sort of every kind of pulp adventure concept you can have, sort of all mixed together, and then developed in this beautiful animation because the silhouettes are great, but they live in a three D environment that is uh, initially it's very industrial. It feels very um, 
Victorian, but also very Gothic and grim. And there's this disease that's kind of, uh, you know, just tearing its way through this city. And then those airships are just these beautiful, but kind of foreboding giant, like almost look like beasts, you know, they almost look like whales sort of swimming through this air current. And the story is very classic kind of pulp horror, which I really appreciated. But imagery wise, I was reminded of things like King Kong and the Harryhausen movies. It has that sense of adventure and escapism. But here's the thing. I think animation, and we'll probably come across this a lot. When you're looking at sometimes a work of an animation, it's very easy to get just caught up in the way that it looks and even to be able to appreciate something simply for how beautiful it is and how it's been done and to kind of linger on those things the thing about this one particularly to jasper morello is i was into the story i kind of stopped processing it as animation it's not that this wasn't beautiful but it was working together so seamlessly that i was concerned about what was going to happen to the crew of that ship what was going to happen to this creature that they discover in the in the the jungle and i think that's a real testament that i was enjoying it as an adventure story first and foremost and not just as animation bill what do you think about that? i was going to say for this i really enjoyed it because as you guys have said i really like the steampunk aspect to it it kind of adds a sense of style to the film uh kind of scientific mind it's it's almost a sci-fi film and the other thing i really liked is the creature feature aspect to it and I don't want to give too much of that away because I want people to watch it without knowing the ending. But there's almost a feeling of like the thing kind of going in this, uh, especially when you find out what it feeds off of. And the ending is quite thrilling. Like I wasn't expecting that much thrilling danger for the ending of this cartoon. Um for this cartoons, the wrong word, the an animation. I really like the soft hues of the yellows, the golds, the black and the white. And I like the black and white profile of the characters. It almost adds a sense of mystery to them because you don't really, I mean, you get, you don't get the facial expressions. You don't get the intonation. You just get basically what's being said in these black and white figure silhouettes. So from that point of view, I liked it. And it was a tight, compact story. What is it, 22 minutes, 26 minutes, whatever it is? There's not a lot of jibber jabber, flip flam. You got the story and it gets from X to Y in a pretty expeditious way. So I thought for a short film, the characters had a breadth and a depth to them, but they didn't wallow in every little detail. They got from X to Y to Z. And by the end, I was fairly satisfied. I, I'd give this an eight. I really liked this one. Yeah, I'm 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 there with you. I would say probably eight to eight point five. And something you had mentioned, Nathan, definitely that this one really is about the story. You you know, of all of the the movies we're going to be talking about tonight, this is the one that I think you're so wrapped up in the story of it that you sort of forget you're watching um, uh, an animation. You know, a lot. And and I don't I don't mean that to. That's certainly not to, to, to be degrading to animation in any way because – but what I mean is when you're, when we're talking about, um, you know, Cat Soup or the other uh, feature films we're going to be talking about, there's a, there's a beauty. There's, there's, a, there, there's something uh, about the animation itself that is, is part of the strength of the film. In this one, it is the story above all else. And, you know, and when you're – and. I think it it even supersedes the animation uh, 
in a, in a way, um, and and yet the animation works perfectly. It, it's all it works perfectly in unison uh, with what is presenting. I, I would definitely say eight point five, maybe even a nine. You know, I, I'm going to say eight point five for now. Um, definitely a movie that you should see. I saw it with uh, Spanish subtitles. It was a YouTube video with Spanish subtitles. Uh, didn't distract me at all. You know, maybe the first few minutes I was a little distracting, but after that. I was so wrapped up in what was going on that I had just completely forgotten there were even subtitles uh, in another language at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, and I'm I am going with a nine for this, but this is also I've seen this many times over the years, and I love the style of it. And I think I think what you're you're getting at, Dave, is that the animation is beautiful and wonderfully realized, and you could just look at this thing without hearing any of it and be amazed. But the fact is that the story is so good that it even trumps the animation. And I yeah. think that's what's impressive because when movies are very visually strong, they're kind of one of my favorite things is a visually rich movie. But that really requires that you really have to work with the story to make sure the story rises to the surface and doesn't get swallowed up. Uh, and they do that here. And I I'd heard they were going to make other uh, editions of this. And I always wish that they had. And they... They never did. I mean, I honestly would have watched an entire feature film made in this style with no problem at all, you know. And in fact, my daughter, when this was over, said, wait, that's it, Dad? <laughs> I had to say yes. But what a beautiful, haunting note that it ends on. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't it leaves you thinking I could watch more of this, but it doesn't leave you thinking, oh, that's all, you know, in a in a disappointed sort of way. No, I was going to say there was one quote that I wrote down that I found interesting from it. And it said, women can go forward in time through their ability to procreate men only through their work. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> it's interesting playing with that Victorian world and a Victorian sense of thought. And you get a lot of that particularly interplay between what the navigator wants to do and what the doctor wants to do. And that character of the doctor, he's a perfect kind of combination of like, Dr. Frankenstein and Professor Challenger and and even even a little bit of Herbert West. You know what I mean? Sort of all wrapped up in this one kind of person. With a little bit of the skipper Actually, from Gilligan's Island. Herbert, Herbert West is a great um, uh, comparison because Herbert West is is almost immoral, you know, but but he's driven by what he wants to accomplish. And that's what you get from the doctor in this movie. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, there, there, morality doesn't enter the enter into the picture because it's all about achieving his goal. You know, uh, and I think that um, he he ends up being probably the most interesting character, even a little bit more than than uh, Jasper Morello. He's uh, the doctor because you you you. There are times when you you think, wow, he's he's. You know, he's almost like a hero. And there are times when you think he's the villain uh, in the movie. And and I, I think that makes him the, probably the most interesting character in, in the film. You know, the one when you're just like, what's he going to do next? Is it going to be heroic or is it is is it going to be evil? You know, he's capable of both of them. And you see that in this movie. And I, I love that about that character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's... Um... It's really good. It, it we'll put the link in the in the show notes. But there's also there's uh, there's there's copies on YouTube and there's copies on uh, Vimeo as well that I think are a little bit better that don't have the the Spanish subtitles because I watched it the same way um, this last time as you did. But it is also I believe available on the collection of short films 
uh, the DVD from 2005. So the next one we're going to talk about is really probably the movie that inspired the entire concept of this podcast because it's one that I want to say back around Halloween or in October, uh, Dave sent me the link for this and said, "Ah, this is what I'm watching right now. And I think you were watching it on a DVD or a Blu-ray perhaps. And it's called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. You had sent me. Um, I don't know if it was a link or maybe even a screenshot. And the minute I saw it, I was instantly intrigued by it. And I honestly was surprised because as I looked into this, I realized that I did not, I was not um, privy to this. I didn't know about this, uh, this director, this artist, Lottie Renninger, who was a, uh, a German director. She made over 40 features and a lot of them were done in this silhouette animation style that this film is done in. And we talked about Jasper Borello. There's a movie from 2011 called Tales of the Night that is once I saw this, I realized instantly that Tales of the Night had been explicitly based off of Renegar's work. So I would think we might be able to cover that movie at some point. I don't know if you've seen it, Dave, or you're aware of it, but put that on yeah. your, on, on your, you know, tuck that away somewhere. Tales of the Night is an animated okay. film. It's an anthology of almost Arabian night style stories which makes sense because that's what much of prince achman has been drawn from is kind of a hodgepodge of the arabian nights but this film was done in 1926 it's it's kind of uh thought to be probably the oldest existing like currently still existing animated film out there and it's uh the oldest surviving animated film and a lot of it, they thought it had been lost, but they were kind of, they pulled it together. Uh, they've got, I, I don't know what the DVD quality was like on the one that you saw. Dave, was it pretty good? It was. It was excellent. I think the Milestone Collection is the one who put it out. Uh, it looked great. Uh, they did a they did a great job uh, remastering it. And it takes, so yeah, and it's beautifully done. Uh, to talk about what it is, again, it's a silhouette style and she invented, she kind of was making the camera, you know, at the same time, even film itself is still in its early infancy stages, right? It's the 20s. So we are talking about silent films at this point, but she is taking cutouts and the way there, there's a short film too, that I've linked in the, in the show notes here that I sent to you guys as well, that kind of shows her go through her process and her process. She's cutting these out painstakingly out of like, they really are cut out silhouettes. She's cutting them out of paper, the way she puts them together and she attaches them together really kind of reminds you almost more of the stop motion style of a Harryhausen than it does traditional animation. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but the way these characters are almost like elaborate puppets, but they are just paper. And she created this layered sense by having various sheets of thin sheets of glass. And then she would put these characters under them and she create these layered worlds. And what surprises me is when you're looking at that, I'm thinking, wow, I would never be able to do all that. The color tinting she does, the different, the, the different techniques. It, again, it has a handcrafted feel that bleeds over into the movie as you're watching it. But then when these characters start to move, and these are characters pulled from fairy tales, and particularly in this case, the Arabian Nights. So you have Aladdin shows up, and you have uh, Peri Banu shows up, and all these different characters. Uh, Prince Ahmed shows up from the Arabian Nights. It's a little different. This is Prince Ahmed 
and the sorcerer character that always jumps in and out of Sinbad stories and out of the Aladdin stories uh, and a lot of the Disney versions, I guess he was he the Jafar character, that all of these pieces end up in this film in a sort of basic story that you recognize. And it's interesting because in this version, you have an African sorcerer and you have the flying horse and he shows it to the caliph. And then when the, re- the sorcerer refuses to sell it, they, uh, you know, the, the, the caliph offers him any treasure you want. And in a classic fairy tale fashion, the sorcerer chooses the caliph's daughter. And of course, then this sets up this whole story where Prince Ahmed, who is this girl's uh, brother, he objects and he's going to go after the sorcerer. Eventually he gets a hold of the magical horse. And some of the scenes of him on the horse flying reminds me of the 1920s uh, era, I think Douglas Fairbanks' uh film the the thief of baghdad and that was made remade again later but there's images in both of these that uh, that are similar to one another and they're trying to tell the same fantastical story i think they're both very interesting movies but the thing that really strikes me about uh about this one is how much it really delves into its fantasy world and makes that fantasy come alive in a way that's pretty exceptional for 1926 to me there's few other movies that are maybe as immersive into their fantasy world at the same time i would think and, and this is even a couple years later i think a movie or uh, around the same time frame i guess would be uh metropolis you know there's very few other movies i can think of that are this immersive for this time frame into this fantasy world but the whole story keeps going you have ahmed um he figures out how to fly the horse and he goes to this magical island called walk walk <laughs> And when the walk walk shows up, the only thing I could think of was when we did the Dark City podcast and and uh, Jason Piles, he's kind of fascinated by the fact that, Dave, you talk about Wawa and the, 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 he's like, Dave gets his food from from a gas station and which isn't exactly right. Uh, but he called it, I remember we were listening to it and he called it the wow. Wow. And when I saw the whack, whack, I just kept thinking that in, in maybe in Jay's mind, the Wawa is like this, you know, magical oasis. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was waiting maybe. for him to have like, for one meatball subs or something. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know what? As I was watching this again and I did watch it again for the, for the podcast and, um, and I remember that exchange, Nathan, as soon as I was watching it, I'm like, you know what? Cause it was a new discovery for me at that point. You know, I, I had, um, I had the DVD and I popped it in and I'm like, this is really, uh, impressive. This is really a, a, an amazing work here. I had to keep reminding myself, this is 95 years old. I mean, we are approaching a hundred years and not only is this animation, this was a a a, uh, a woman uh, working in film, and you didn't get a lot of that uh, back in the 1920s. And not only was she just working, she was doing some groundbreaking stuff. Um, because you you talked about stop motion, yes, this is almost like the perfect blending of cell animation and stop motion animation. You know, you get both of them here. Um, and I think, I mean, it's more stop motion than anything. When you saw her process in that, in that short that, um, we got, uh, of her actually, um, you know, putting together, uh, an animated, uh, film, uh, it is more stop motion, but it has that, the, the quality of a cell animated film as well. Um, it's, 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 
it's just a, it's almost like a miracle in a way that that this movie existed at the time it did and what it must have taken at the time to create it there's so much happening here and as you're watching these silhouettes they're real characters you know these are not just cutouts she is making them real characters this is along the lines of Ray Harryhausen when he would infuse personality into um, the Medusa and the skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts and everything else that he did had, you know, his work had a personality. These, um, these animated figures have a personality of their own and you buy right into it. And even 95 years later, you know, this movie has lost nothing. You watch and you mentioned the thief of Baghdad, you know, the Douglas Fairbanks film. That's a great uh, comparison, you know, because that's a fantasy film made around the same time. And yet, as good as The Thief of Baghdad is, and I really enjoy it, and I even like the remake um, uh, that came out in, I think, 1940. Uh, not a remake, but just a different telling of The Thief of Baghdad. There's something about The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, I think, that puts it even above those films. And that's really saying something. Yeah, I agree. I think that the, and there's a otherworldly feel. It's a it's a, a sense of magic, like you said. That it, it, it's a miracle that exists, and there's a magical feel to it. And she uses tints for these scenes, and even those things give the scenes emotions. I will be honest. It's funny. I was sitting there watching this with my kids, and it is perfectly for the you know it's mostly appropriate to see. But it's funny how. These little emotions. I remember the scene when he gets to the walk walk, which is this fantasy world where these these uh, spirit creatures live. And the, these spirit creatures, they fly down as birds and they turn into women and they're bathing there. And he's watching them bathe. And there's a sensuality, not extreme, but but it, but the sensuality of the scene. You're watching you're watching cut out characters, and yet that that sort of like low key eroticism kind of comes through in the scenes of them bathing and, and their movements and him watching them. Like there's, you're getting these emotions. There's a scene set on an ocean with a ship that you capture the feel of the waves flinging the ship and the distress of the characters on the ship in classic Harry Allison fashion. You get a couple monster fights in this that are impressive, partially yeah. because they transform into other creatures while they're fighting. You know, what's a scorpion and a snake will transform into a dragon and something else in the very next scene. And the costumes, it's weird to talk about costumes when they're just little pieces of cut out paper, but they look beautiful. And there's a sensibility to it. And the story has a certain dark richness to it, but simplicity. It's simple. You can watch it. And I do think it's, I love both Thief of Baghdad movies. And in a lot of ways, I like this better. It was, it was almost a revelation seeing it because I just... You can really get into it. And I didn't know this. I wish I had known. Not uh, not too far from here, um, about 20 minutes away in the city, they have this, uh, uh, and it hasn't been open probably for the last few, you know, probably the last year, but they, they have this thing called the Sweaty Eyeballs Animation Fest. And they have a little sort of like place called the wind-up space down in Baltimore. And it's this little kind of a, a bar and a kind of theater area. And they, they show classic movies. And what they did is they showed this with a live orchestra accompanying it, doing a sort of avant-garde musical soundtrack to it. And they did this in 2018. I didn't know about it. But as I was looking for this online, I found the clip of them playing along with it. And it seemed so cool. And this would be a perfect thing to see that way. I can't really recommend this one enough. I'm glad you turned me on to it. It's, it's, 
it shows the great promise that animation can have in any form, no matter how primitive that form may be. Yeah, I, I really like this film. <clears throat> um, I didn't know what to expect watching it in 1926. You're not sure. And then I read about it that it's the oldest surviving. I guess there was a couple Argentinian ones that haven't survived. So this is the oldest. And the one I thought I saw was the prints kind of all put together and they created this. I, I really, really liked it. I thought it was really well done. And as you guys have gone on about the painstaking effort they made to do the animation scene by scene, piece by piece, movement by movement. I mean, you, we've done before it and we talked about Harryhausen and the time it took to do that. This would have even been probably on top of that, like impressive to all get out. And I'm not going to go over stuff you guys have talked about, but I thought that the sorcerer was really spooky looking like with that chin hair hanging out. And I thought the yeah. kids, the kids in the mid twenties would have been crapping their pants at this. Like this would have given them nightmares seeing this stuff. Um, <laughs> and I also think it's scarier than you might think. Like I honestly wrote down Tim Burton inspiration question mark, because you kind of look at this and then you look at his stuff from, you know, 90 years later, it's not that far off in the visualization and the mood that's set in it. I thought it was really good. There were a couple scenes where there's characters flying in the air and there's some where there's performers yet in the sky, there's a subtleness to it that they show stars and clouds in the background. There's a foreground and a background yep. in 1926 film that's yeah. visual and discernible. And I'm like, you know, this, this isn't just some wham, bam, slap together kind of deal. This took time and effort, which is anybody that I like. I'm not an animation guy coming in. I was blown away by this for 1926. Absolutely awesome. I was also impressed by the fluidity, like how in unison everything was. It, with the story kind of went together. And I also got a bit of a Disney vibe with the use of music and fairy tale and storytelling in this. So... Yeah, go out and see this. Eight, eight point five, easy out of ten. And there's a really good couple epic battle scenes towards the end of this film. It, it, really good. I can't go enough about this film. I and you know it's it's what one of the things and you you just referenced the bill the the battle at the end and Nathan you had said about how like there there's these two characters who are transforming into different creatures. And um, other characters, Prince Ahmed and at this point Aladdin is in the story and they're watching this battle take place. And as I'm watching it, I can just imagine like the, the characters of Aladdin and Prince Ahmed going, wait a second, which one just turned into the snake? Am I you don't know who to root for because these characters <laughs> keep changing into these different creatures and it gets a little bit um, confusing, but I think that's part of the story. I don't think that was meant. I don't think that was like an accident. I think it was meant to be that way because they just keep transforming. It's a lion fighting a snake. Then the scorpion, you know, uh, 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 transforms into a scorpion fighting a, a different creature. And it just, they, these two characters and it starts off as the witch and uh, the wizard. And they just keep battling each other. And how interesting is it in 1926, a witch is one of the heroes. You know that this witch character ends up being one of the heroes of the movie. And I think that when you have Lottie Renninger, you have a, a woman putting the movie together, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, there's there's a lot when you watch this and you just realize you're saying, 
first time I saw it is like, why didn't I know about this before I before now? With yes. everything, a 1926 animated film by a woman. Why isn't why didn't I know about this uh, prior to now? This should have been like this should have been like right up there with Metropolis or the Jazz Singer as one of the uh, defining moments of cinema. I think the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. It really should be known as that, and I think that um, that would only be giving it its due. You know, that's not even overselling it. That's just giving it its due. Now, would part of that p- possibly be that it was German? So, well, possibly. Because, yeah, possibly. And it also seems like maybe some of it had been lost for a while. And I know that that Reniger basically, and, and I think uh, her other filmmakers that she was working with, they did end up fleeing Germany too. So, you know, I wonder if some of this all plays into that. But what's your rating on this one, Dave? You know what? I'm going to say a 9.5. I mean, I think this is one that um, if you want to know about like the origins of cinema and I've talked about like some of my favorite silent movies of Nosferatu and the passion of Joan of Arc and, um, you know, you know, getting back into the, the early days of cinema. I think this one has to be in the conversation with all of those, you know, with all of those sort of films that. Uh, you know, the silent movies that uh, that that sort of uh, set everything in motion. Um, this has to be part of that conversation because it is uh, the origins of animation. And you can see both stop motion and cell animation. You see where uh, the influences of both of them in this movie. And it's it's less than an hour, 10 minutes. I think it's like an hour and six minutes. Yeah. And they cram so much into it so much story into that hour and six minutes. Um, It's, it really is just a, it's, you just sort of sit there with, with uh, you you know, your mouth agape, your jaw hitting the floor saying, what, what an amazing movie. When you think of the fact that it is 95 years old. Yeah, it truly is transporting. It's sort of, this is the thing cinema supposed to do. I'm right there with you. 9.5 for me after, as I was watching it, particularly the second time, um, because I'd watched it a, a, a few weeks back and was just amazed by it and watched it again with the kids. And, you know, it dawned on me, uh, as, as this was going on that, you know, I wonder if the opening sequences and the kind of wraparound sequences of Fantasia were not inspired by this. Uh, if you think, if, for anyone who's seen Fantasia, you know, obviously it's music and he's set, and a lot of them are, are are fantastical stories, but they're all traditional cell animation, except for the orchestra, which is just the silhouettes of the orchestra set against a, a, a bluish sort of tinted backdrop. And the backdrop colors change, not unlike this, you know. And you you, you have Mickey Mouse runs up and talks to them. You remember, like, right before the Sorcerer's Apprentice right. sort of begins, you have Mickey Mouse and that stark image of the silhouette against the sort of color-changing background. And I just thought, hey, that that would be interesting if there was some element of an acknowledgement even then, because that would have been, you know, at this point, funny to think, because that's the 40s, right, that, that Rediger's work was only about 20-some years earlier. Um, right. At, at that point in time. So it would have been at least probably a focal point. So I think, um, yeah, this is when you, this is a must see for, for anyone who likes movies, forget animation, forget anything else. If you like movies, this is something to see. The, the last aspect I want to touch on was the fact that it was a silent film from 26. Obviously the original film score is probably gone. 
But many people over the years have created their own film scores for this film. And if you go to the IMD, not IMDb, the uh, Wikipedia page, they uh, note it down below. And one of the people that put out an album of the score of The Adventures of Prince Ahmed was a youth band, uh, I don't know if they're an orchestra, called the Morricone Youth, came out with an actual vinyl LP, I believe in 2016, of their version of a score of this film. So I'd be interested in picking this up and purchasing this LP of what they thought the score should be. Dave Roy is a big fan of, of these guys, of the Morricone youth. He says they are great. And I haven't, he mentioned them when we did the Morricone episode and um, he really liked them a lot. So I, I would be very interested to hear this. I'm wondering if Dave is listening. Cause he probably is. Do you have this and have you played it on your radio show? Because just let this play for 45 minutes and let her go. Yeah. I would love to hear that as well. That's awesome we are going to go to our last film of the night and it's a 1973 film called fantastic planet. Now fantastic planet was directed by Rene Lalu. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. And the one star in it using their voice that you might be aware of is Barry Boswick, who was in a lot of dramas and comedies over the years, especially the Rocky horror picture show. Uh, This one, the IMDb synopsis is on a faraway planet where blue giants rule oppressed humanoids rebel against their machine-like leaders. This is, as I said, 1973, 1972, 1973. This very much is of its time. Uh, You kind of get that 2001, you know, somebody's watching. It's got a social meaning to it that we can get into, but it's also a lot of fun. Uh, it's also got very much, you know, of that, uh, Tommy, the wall, that kind of feel to it. I'll get into it. So it was an international co-production between France and the Czech Republic. I guess it would have been Czechoslovakia back then. And it's based on a 1957 novel, uh, novel, by Stefan Wool. So in this, you have two sets of individuals. Aliens called the drags, or yeah, the drags, who treat hu- the humans, alms, as animals, basically, as pets, as things to be watched and observed. And it, the aliens don't think too much of the uh, of the alms. Uh, at the beginning, one of the uh, drugs, uh, drags, uh, has one of them as a pet. And they're observing them almost from a scientific point of view. How does it react? How do things uh, react with him and how does he behave and how does he deal with certain situations? It's very 70s in its music. It's At times, I don't know, Dave and uh, Nathan can jump in. I almost got a, a Monty Python kind of feel with the Terry Gilliam kind of cartoonish uh, end of it. <laughs> now that, I think that's fair. It's very illustrated. Yeah, yeah. Very illustrated. You know yeah. I didn't get that at first, but you know what? Now that you mention it, I can definitely see it. I, I see where you're coming from. Because definitely. this isn't a Walt Disney type animation. This isn't a one where they, it's not that they didn't put the time into it, but it, it's very much of its time. So if you know early 70s cartoons, this would very much fit in there. Now, it's very much more open in, say, its sexuality, its use of nudity, its use of grittiness. It's use of basically showing what they think 
people perceive others to be. Um, aliens make humans fight for their amusement. There's a few fight scenes. And this one um that was the pet grows up and escapes and then meets other, uh, sorry, other ohms who have their own tribe who have actually at first when he approaches them, they kind of make fun of him because he's domesticized, uh, domesticated. And he has to get along with them. And there's an interactions between the ohms who are domesticated of him and the rest of the tribe. And then as they all kind of get along and they ask him certain things because they don't know how the uh, other side of the world works, they come up and they meet up with another. They find another tribe. And then there's the interactions between that. Um, it's much more rudimentary in its animation compared to some but it is very accurate in other ways. It's a very socially driven film, in my opinion. Um, at the end of the day, there is the escape from tyranny and the ums kind of overcoming certain things. I don't want to get too deep into it because I want you to watch with all the spoilers. But it's, it's a social film. You know, it's people who are different should they be treated equally? So is it a equality of rights? Is it, I quite enjoyed this film from a point of view of society in the early seventies, going through a lot of culture and counterculture. You got the end of the hippies. You're kind of getting into the oil crisis is coming in. There's a lot going in society. You know, you know what? I really, um, I liked the movie. I think one of the things that I thought was was interesting, and you have the like you were saying, you have the story of the drags and the ohms, uh, and this sort of um, you know the ohms are the humanoids, and there's a scene at the beginning where uh, this this one ohm is running with her baby, and uh, you see this huge hand sort of preventing her from going up a hill and and pushing her down, and and these hands, uh, you know, sort of um, tormenting this woman as she's trying to escape with her baby. And then when they pull back, you realize that uh, it's really like uh, it's these, these own children who have been sort of playing or not own children, these, these drug children who have been playing with the, with this own woman her, and her baby as if they were toys, as if they were bugs you know, all of us, you know, when I was a kid, and I think a lot of people have the same experience when you see like bugs and and sometimes you break out the magnifying glass or you do something that, you know, that is just sort of cruel. And that's what's happening to these ohms in this opening scene, this woman and her child. Um, and, you, you know, so you've got that sort of dynamic early on between the drugs or the intelligent there there's the, the the stronger species the ohms are considered the lesser species even though the humans they're the closest to to um you know to us these ohms but what really got me about this movie is just how dark the world is i mean it, you know um aside from the two main uh groups of of characters the drugs and the ohms you get this darkness in this world. I mean, you 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 have um, uh, a scene where there's this plant that captures bugs, almost like a Venus flytrap in a way. But then you realize it's not capturing it for food; it's just capturing it for sport and letting you know it's not even devouring these creatures. It's just being a dick. 
It's right. It's just letting them die. Uh, you have this this creature later on that's it's like this flying. It has bat wings, but it's almost like bird like, and it has this beak that's like a trunk of a tree that just devours ohms. It just you know it, it buries into the ground to devour ohms by the dozens. Um, and probably the for me, what was really just disturbing, but also the most uh, poignant moment in the movie. A small a baby reptile hatches from an egg. <laughs> Another creature comes over, you think is nurturing it, and then just slurps it up and eats it. <laughs> it's, it's like it's, as much as the ohms and the drugs are a big part of this film, the background world has is, is just as interesting, just as frightening, and just as disturbing as anything that's happening with the main two groups of characters in this movie. This is a very dark, sinister, troubling world that was created for this film. Yeah, you almost get the feeling that the point is nature's an a-hole. Uh, you know, and it is, you're right, you're right. Uh, Dave, that for one, one thing that's interesting that I don't know we've pointed out, but you can tell by looking at any shot of this movie, is this is a very colorful movie. The drags are giant blue aliens, and they almost just look like little people, but it's done in a pastel, almost color pencil with hash, with, uh, with you know, a lot of, uh, of, of cross-hatching, and it has a very, like, soft, illustrated feel. It's very pleasing right. on the outset to look at, and it is very colorful. It's very bright and vibrant. Uh, the the world that's created here it's much more vibrant than any of the other movies we've talked about here uh, in terms of its visual style but the world it presents is a very harsh unforgiving one and it isn't like you said it's not just that the drugs are these cruel overlords it's not so much that they're cruel they just are us and the ohms are like bugs or pets and you know it's it viewed right. by some as an infestation you know there's a point when the ohms are it's supposed to look like a revolution and they're attacking one of the drags but to us from a human perspective, that's when a, a swarm of bees attacks you, right? You know what I mean? And right. uh, a, a whole bunch of little things are hurting the big thing bigger than you would expect, uh, greater than you would expect. And there's a lot of weirdness, like you have the, it, it has a Gulliver's Travels feel to it too, and the allegory and this, the social stories that are being told here. And the the, the blue alien who has one of the, the, the ohm that is sort of the, the protagonist as he grows up, you know, and there's a lot of just weird visuals. I mean, there's probably some weird fetishes that are started just from this movie. Although you got the big blue alien holding the little guy and the weird like poncy outfits he has. That must be something on the internet, I'm sure. And then how about the one where they tie the character's <laughs> hair together and they have to fight each other for their amusement? I thought that was insane. That was, that that was, was very sadistic. That was sadistic. But yes, yes, that yeah, absolutely. And then and the, yeah, the characters with the creatures tied to their chest. Well, that's the thing, right? The the ohms and these are the ohm uh, these are the drag children who who have tied them together. They're playing like a game in the schoolyard. So it's not necessarily that the drugs yeah. approve of this behavior. It's this is what the kids are doing when nobody's looking. You know, like when you right uh, the the kids in the fifties who might try to blow up a frog with a pop bottle or something like that. But the thing is, right when 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 the ohms. When he finally gets away from the drugs and he takes their, it's so it's, there's so much great imagery in this movie too. That the the drugs, their primary way of 
of energizing themselves is to send their minds out sort of a, in a transcendental meditation and they send their minds out of their bodies in these like little balloons and they travel up to another world. I mean, all of it is very fascinating to look at when he escapes. He takes the basically like the training device, the, the, the interactive teaching tool that's used for the children. And he takes one with him so he can like educate the rest of the, the ohms. And yet when he gets there, they're even more brutal. They're the ones that tie this snapping dragony larva thing to your body. And you have to run at the other guy and hope that his, that your larva bites him before he bites you. Right. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's, I think it's a good fantasy film. I think it's a good, um, even sort of uh, approaching sci-fi in a way. Um, but, and, and it does, you know, the story itself isn't too involved, you know, with, with the ohms and the drugs. And the structure is weird too. Yeah. Because the protagonist starts telling his story, but he fades away after a certain point. He's still there, but the story becomes almost like you're watching it all from a third, from a like third person perspective. Like, right, right. And you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily have an emotional attachment, at least to the level that you do in other films with, with the ohms or, um, well, not with the drugs, but with the ohms or who we're supposed to be you know, identifying with they're, they're the, like um, the human character. You could always be watching an alien nature documentary in the last third of this, you know, where someone's just telling right, you, right. This is how the ohms and the, and the drugs came to their understanding. <laughs> like a messed up Dr. Seuss. Right. <laughs> um, but even if you're not quite getting there with the story, and I don't think the story's, you know, the story's not bad. It's just sort of simplistic. Yeah. You know, it's it's not as involved. It's it's not as um, intricate as the world. That's what you're here for. Is. The world is so yes. immersive for a for the kind of drawing. This is not very fluid animation either. You know, these are really moving illustrations. Not unlike Bill's reference to Monty Python. And I wonder if maybe part of the Monty Python like similarity is not just that, but the artist this most reminded me of was an artist. Um, Hieronymus Bosch, and if you look up Hieronymus Bosch, he used he did lots of great, um, beautiful paintings of hell, <laughs> of the of the oh. uh, the underworld. If you look up Hieronymus Bosch, he has beautiful classical art paintings, and it's weird. It's like giant egg people with their backs cracked open, or little barrels running, and just feet coming out from under them. But there's like arrows jabbed in them, and all kinds of crazy demons. And, and very weird flora and fauna. And if you look at those pictures and then you look, Monty Python and Terry Gilliam, they clearly were very familiar with Hieronymus Bosch. And I think that this artist is as well because that weird world and the way it exists and the strangeness of it very much reminds me of, of him. And so I think that might be some of the, why, why the two look similar. Um, this is, a, this for me is probably like about a, I mean, honestly, I think it's just, it's a movie that is a great visual treat and it, there's, there's a lot of darkness, but there is a story there. I give it about an 8.5, I think for me. I agree. I, I'm going to come in right at, at that same level. I'm going to say an 8.5. I think, um, visually it's pretty amazing at times. I liked a lot of the, um, 
the world that you see in the background. I think almost you can make a movie just on what you're seeing in the background of this film. Um, you know, that, that you get the feeling it's almost like filler, uh, the, the, these creatures and everything, they, they could be their own film. Um, and even though the story between the ohms and the drugs is on, is sort of, uh, you know, I, I want to say simplistic. I think that might be, uh, a little too detrimental because I don't, I don't think that it's, it's, you know, simplistic is quite, you know, saying it properly. Um, it's just not as intricate a story as the world itself is intricate. And I think that that's, um, I don't think it's a a very basic, almost boilerplate social battle. You know, there's a lot of the undertones of planet of the apes or something like that here. You're seeing the lower class versus the ruling class. And that construct is simple, but it's set against this like very complex universe. Yeah. Exactly. That's probably the best way to put it. It's, you know, story wise, I think there's a, um, it, it's, it's good, but visually and with the world it creates, it, it, it it's better. And I think 8.5 is probably a very fair rating. Yeah. I'm going to give this an eight. I enjoyed it. It's kind of one of these ones where, yeah, you can dig deep and try to get the inner meaning of it, but really I just wanted to watch to see how it played out. That's really what it came down to. I, I really didn't have a dog in the fight. I just wanted to see how it played, and let's just say it it, it came out quite interesting. Let's just put it at that. So yep. I'll give it an eight. And I do want to say one thing, Dave. When you were doing your um like review of it, that that same scene you mentioned as being the one that really sort of underlined the cruelty and heartlessness of this world is the same one that resonated with me where you have this little creature and you know, some bad's going to happen to it by this point. Cause you've been about halfway through this movie and right. you know, this it's, it, this it's sitting there shivering and it's newly born. And this big hippo thing comes up. It just starts to lick it. And then exactly right. It just eats it. And it's like, <laughs> that is the micro, that's the whole film in a microcosm really. And, and there's some interesting things I think it is saying there. And there are some similarities. I think you could watch a movie like this and a planet of the apes. And they both are, you know, um, they're both based off of works by French um, sci-fi authors. And so you can see a lot of the similarities, I think, between the two. And I would say for people who've been listening to this, that, it you know, we haven't, most of these films don't actually have like your typical uh, like MPAA rating or anything to them. I would say that Prince Ahmed, it, correct me if you guys feel differently. I'd say that's pretty much an all ages kind of thing, you know. And pretty much anybody can really watch Prince Ahmed. Uh, I would say this is more of a PG-13. And I would think you'd want an old, like a child who can, because because beyond the content, and there's not a lot of extreme sexual content. There's some, there's some stuff, you know, some of the aliens are um, uh, like the, the drags. A lot of them aren't wearing tops and some of the, the ohms aren't either. Um, but it's the darker content. You'd really want a, a, a like a 13 year old or something like that. Someone who could process this kind of story i think because it'd be disturbing i think for anyone much younger i i agree i think you know and there is um a degree of sexuality in the film and it's with the ohms but it's funny because it's not overt it's very sort of veiled and it's not um in your face what's really in your face is the cruelty Yes, and, yes, and the, the terror of the world that where and the background world, 
You know, it's it's like as much as the as the drugs as, as some terrible things that they do to the ohms and the ohms sometimes due to the drugs. It's nothing compared to what's going on in the background in this world. <laughs> Uh, you know, everything that you see sort of uh, on the margins uh, is is worse than the main story. And even um, that's where you're going to not quite get to, uh, you know, younger, younger kids. I mean, younger kids, I could see watching this and just sort of maybe having nightmares, you know, yeah. after, it's, uh, after it's over. I'm sure there were some kids who probably had that experience, maybe French kids. I didn't. Um, you know, for me, it was Watership Down. <laughs> but... Which had oh, Watership Down. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. Watership Down. We should probably do, you know, Nathan, I think we should probably do an episode eventually. It's like, we should call it the, the, the wrist slashing episode where we can do Plague Dogs and When the Wind Blows. Right. The Richard Adams um, seasonal right. depression episode. <laughs> talk about. I, I think that's a good idea. Those are both very strong movies. I saw them both when I was younger and I cried yeah. during both of them. And I... It wasn't because I was a little kid. I would cry right, now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, you know, we picked some good movies here. I think. I think these are really good, strong movies. They're 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 great too. I think for people who maybe aren't, you know, are a little skeptical about the animation. Who, if they listen to this, thought, you know, do I want to check this out? But hopefully, these movies sounded interesting to you. They are not your. We specifically chose this time around. Maybe not run of your mill animated films we are excited to talk about those movies as you heard earlier i mean i, I we'd love to talk about uh, we'll do some episodes based around saturday morning cartoons and things like that and um i've got a couple of uh we got some comments and things like that that, that people have mentioned i want to touch those briefly and then we'll mention what next week uh, not next week but the next episode for february will be um but we did we got a voicemail from greg bench i'm going to play it here in a moment let's go ahead and i wanted to just read a couple of comments that are on uh Facebook and Twitter when we ask people about their favorite um, animations or animation that we should talk about. We had a lot of different people mention things. We had a strangely, we had a couple of mentions of uh, Ralph Bakshi actually, and specifically Fritz mm. the cat. And I, I don't know yet if we're going to review Fritz the cat here, but Dave and I have been talking that I think it would be fun to do a Bakshi yeah. episode. And he, he Ralph Bakshi had a lot of very movies and i even saw some of them when i was younger not the ones not the not the ones that would have been in the r-rated um arena but but movies like uh, wizards and lord of the rings you know it's almost strange to think that ralph bakshi was allowed to make a lord of the yeah. Rings movie you know considering it's considering how tightly they tried to hold on to those rights you know later on that um, but it's an interesting movie. I don't think it's a movie without its charms. And actually, I really, I think it'd be fun to talk about the Rankin and Bass ones as well at some point. The, the, the Hobbit films that, uh, that Rankin Bass. I made think, I think we can do that. Um, I think we yeah. can do a Lord of the Rings, uh, Hobbit, Hobbit Lord of the Rings episode and, and talk about those uh, in particular. And, and yeah, and, and I think with Ralph Bakshi, yeah. I think Fire and Ice is one that that's my favorite. That's probably my favorite Ralph Bakshi film is Fire and Ice. I really need to revisit that one. And it's funny mentioning that because um, this Pearl Morgan did mention several different um, artists, particularly Frank uh, Frazetta, who was, and, and also uh, Boris Vallejo and all of those guys, they did a lot of work that ended up in the heavy metal yeah. magazines. And Bill has already requested that we review, uh, <laughs> that we review. Um, whenever, whenever you guys, uh, whenever you do that episode, I want the invite. I want to watch that. And I, I haven't seen it. That's what's great about Bill. Bill hasn't seen any of these things. So I get to watch it for the first time and actually 
tell you what I think about it. Because I think we'll maybe we could pair heavy metal and and uh, ice, fire and ice. Fire and ice would be good, or maybe rock and roll. Rock and roll and heavy metal might be a good pairing as well. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, rock and roll and heavy metal. That that's that's the yeah. perfect matchup there. And I I never did see the heavy metal two thousand. I I haven't either. I haven't seen that one either. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of great things about it, but anyway, uh, and uh, Victor Rodriguez mentioned Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, and we are definitely going to get to some Miyazaki. Yes. I think Dave and I have talked about the fact that Miyazaki basically is going to have to get more than one. Episode. Oh yeah, absolutely. He, he deserves his own um, series. And, and absolutely. I, and I think you, you need to get Victor on here to extrapolate on it. Oh yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, Nausicaa is a very interesting movie, uh, even in the sense of if you look at the movie we just talked about, Fantastic Planet, and and that kind of darker world. But you know what is Nausicaa? Miyazaki has a way of creating a world that is both dark and terrifying, and yet beautiful, and even um, and 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 you can have compassion for the characters and it's a little bit not lighter but you brought into the world and it feels warmer you know there's an apocalyptic world in nausicaa and there are giant killer insects but some of those insects you have sympathy for you know he's he's really great at giving you both wonder and darkness in a way that the darkness doesn't capsize the wonder i know i agree and something else about miyazaki is when his fig is when his characters take the flight there's something in all of his movies when his characters yes. are taking to flight. There's an exuberance. There's just an exhilaration about those sequences, and you get it in Spirited Away, which I think is his masterpiece. I think Spirited Away is easily Miyazaki's best film, and that's really saying something. And you get it in Nausicaa of the uh, in the Valley of the Wind, and uh, Castle in the Sky, and Kiki's Delivery Service. Something about when his characters take the flight and they're flying through the air that he just seems to really capture uh, the, 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 the excitement of that. Um, and uh, I really can't wait to delve into uh, to Miyazaki uh, as, as we get deeper because of um, uh, years ago, I wrote into Roger Ebert. Um, he had this thing where, you know, ask the, uh, the you know, he, you'd send him questions. And I always say, I sent him a question about why um, there weren't more animated movies on the Satan sound poles that came out every 10 years. And he had said that the Satan sound pole, um, poles were sort of geared towards auteurs, you know, where the movie is director and a lot of animated movies were done by committee just by default, except for Miyazaki. Miyazaki might be the one true auteur working in animation. And I think that that's, and there are others, you know, we'll get into the links um, as it was Satori Khan and things like that. But I think when you come to auteurs... Is that um, like the Ask the Answer Man segment? Yes, the Ask the Answer Man segment. And and I actually made it into Roger Ebert's 2004... Dave, I remember specifically that response. And I didn't know... Really? I wouldn't have known you from it. Him talking... Because he always... He was a big fan of Miyazaki. And specifically when yeah. you're talking about the committee and the idea in his mind... And it, when you watch the, the the behind the scenes, you realize it's not quite that way, particularly later. It's like, but he kind of viewed Miyazaki as a one one stop shop man, you know, that it was a man as this animation factory, and that gave it most of its heart, you know. And when you see that all the people he employed was like that, but yeah, I specifically remember you said the concept of it being 
being by committee. Well, I used to read yeah. Roger Ebert. Like Roger Ebert's a guy, I mean, for people could say what they want about his views. I didn't agree with all of them, but he's a guy who would, I would read everything he wrote. And sometimes I would read two or three times just because of how he wrote. You know, I really I, felt like I lost a friend or something when he passed. Yeah, I, I did too. I did too. Cause I think it was uh, Jay and I who were texting, you know, uh, emailing back and forth or text, um, texting back and forth uh, when he passed. Um, but yeah, that was actually my question. I actually sent it in that made the 2004 uh, yearbook, Roger Ebert's yearbook. Yes, because I have the yearbooks. That's why I'm familiar with it. Cause I read those things front to cover. I'm going to go was, look it up. After yeah, that awesome. was, that was, that was my question. I asked him about that and I asked why animated movies weren't, uh, you know, weren't, there weren't more of them in the sight and sound. And he explained it to me and he was absolutely right. And I, and when you think about it, yeah, Miyazaki was the one true auteur when it came to um, animated films. Yeah. And then oh, we, a couple of uh, um, a buddy of mine, Jason um, Coupler on the site, he mentioned the wall and I, you know, the wall is not complete. The Pink Floyd's the wall. It's not completely animation, but I do think it counts. And the animation sequences are very striking in that film. Yes. And they also bear some resemblance to fantastic planet. I think. Uh, absolutely. The, the Pink Floyd's the wall is my favorite album of all time. I got it back in 1979 when it first came out and the images that would conjure up in my mind, as I was listening to that album were just, they, they were almost, it was almost all encompassing at the time. I mean, at the time, it's funny because I came across three things all in, all within a few months of each other. It was Pink Floyd's The Wall, Dungeons and Dragons, and Sergeant Rock comic books. And it almost broke me. <laughs> all three of those things combined almost broke me. But the images that conjured up with Pink Floyd's The Wall Alan Parker's movie came damn near matching the images that captured that, that I was thinking in some cases it surpassed them. And that's saying something. And it's the animated sequences with, you know, with the, with the hammers marching and a lot of what happened in that with the, with the animation in Pink Floyd, the wall, you're right. It's mostly live action, but it is the animated sequences that that um, I think added a lot of the power to that film and really drove the uh, the story of that uh, album home. Yeah, we have one more mention here from Real Talk, uh, and they mentioned, uh, and I'm not sure which one of the Real Talk guys this is. Might be maybe Wes uh, mentioned that The Lion King and is probably his all time favorite animated movie but then toy story is sort of like a close second and those are both really good movies i know that they Absolutely. tend towards more of the mainstream but i was blown away the first time i saw toy story i missed it at the theater and i, re I remember renting it and remember just thinking like wow like this is you know and i still think that movie holds up the animation is not you know you could tell it's a little bit more of the primitive cgi now but i still think it's a darn strong movie Oh, it's the story. It really is the story yeah. that that uh, I think puts that one together. And yes, I, I you know what? I was so angry when they made Toy Story four because I thought Toy Story three was the perfect ending to that to 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 that universe to what happened with Toy Story one and two. I yeah. thought Toy Story three was the perfect ending. Yet Toy Story four still had things about it that I enjoyed. It's still really good, right? Like I felt the same one. Like, what are they going to do? And you, you felt just to have that Forky, just to have that creation, 
it gets a pass. Just to have those characters back, I think yeah. is what works. But it's really funny because I think it was um, Quentin Tarantino actually gave Toy Story 3 one of his best movies of the year, if not his top movie of the year. And it's that scene at the end of Toy Story 3. It's a slight spoiler when they're in that trash. Um, oh, my uh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. And, and they're going down. Can anybody watch that and not have a tear in their eye? When they link hands, and I'm, I might have just invented my mind because it's been a little bit since I've seen it. Doesn't don't they say something like to infinity and beyond? And they're about to go into the incinerator, and it fades to black. And I thought my heart was going to like explode out of my chest. Uh, yeah, it was. It was almost like that. Just it's like it's like you see, like it's Woody trying to get out, and he's trying to get out. He's like, "What are we going to do? What are we going to do?" And and Buzz just reaches out his hand. And they all link hands and they're just going down this pit. And it's like, it's like, you can't watch that and not get choked up. I think I've seen it now 10 times. I've seen that 10 times and I get choked up every damn time I see it. If you want to be cruel to your children, just turn it off when it fades. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's the end. But in a way, it would be the perfect ending. I mean, I don't. I'm a, I'm a dark individual, but you know, I mean, oh, exactly. I mean, there, there's no way they could have. There's no way they could have ended it that way. They couldn't have possibly ended it that way. But yet, it was just so fitting because of everything these characters have been through, and to be there at the last moment, they're forgotten. They don't have it's, Andy anymore, and they're just sitting. It's it's just so. It's the Lord strong. of the Rings. Here we are yeah. at the end of all things. That's what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. But um, I am. I I think this has been a ton of fun. I'm glad we got the um, the responses we have. I'm gonna play Greg's voicemail now, and then we'll uh, we'll close the show out and let everybody know what's coming up next. So here's Greg Bench from Ohio. Hi, Dave and Nathan. I'm so eager to hear your first episode about cartoons. I think it's a great subject. Uh, Something I really haven't seeked out for podcasts, but, you know, I trust you guys, and this will be a great subject, so I don't want to spoil my brain. I feel like I'm like any child of the 80s, spoiled with a lot of the cartoons i watched a lot of the reruns um if it's the flintstones the jetsons hannah barbera tom and jerry popeye betty boop you know all of them i was i was just a uh i it was just a a great time to be watching cartoons um, obviously, G.I. Joe was huge, Transformers, He-Man, again, product of the 80s. Um, times had changed for uh, cartoons, uh, the anime style, but y- your guys will d- delve deep into all that. Uh, I think that that's just a, uh, one of the subjects that I imagine you'll probably talk about. Uh, another thing that's that I would hope to... And I know that you'll talk about or soundtracks or, or just the intro songs. Um, I feel like there's a lot of iconic theme songs, whether it's Mighty Mouse or Scooby-Doo, Tom and Jerry, the Pink Panther, Flintstones, Simpsons. I can go on and on and on. I'm a huge fan of, of the themes 
to uh, these cartoons. I got a lot of personal favorites. And um, another thing that, uh, you know, hopefully you guys will touch upon um, is this upcoming Tom and Jerry movie. Now, it strikes a dagger, a, a knife right into my heart. Um, just, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like what I'm looking at. The characters of Tom and Jerry look very 2D in a three-dimensional world. Now, that normally wouldn't play as anything bad, yet they're also, from the trailer, portraying them as actual cat and mouse. So, I'm glad they didn't go with the 3D version, but I think that they took the wrong approach for our beloved characters. So, maybe when that comes to uh, theaters and the VOD or or HBO or however it's going to be released I would say a, a compare and contrast with uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit I think that movie was a success versus I think that Tom and Jerry is going to be a, a, a fail and that, that's kind of a weird thing but it's just yeah, I just don't have good feelings from that trailer I'm also a huge fan of documentaries. One of my personal favorites is the the documentary by Terry Zwigoff uh, entitled Crumb uh, about the underground cartoonist Robert Crumb, which surprisingly, after seeing this movie, I knew a little bit of his works, not the more racy ones, but more of the, the hippie-ish works. Um, you know, like Mr. Natural is probably the, the iconic one that pops inside my head. I had already recognized him. So once I saw that, that, uh, the, the documentary, I mean, it's just, you know, American male. I mean, that he tapped into the, the adolescence of of America with his with his drawings and and um, the pubescent males uh, and sometimes the struggles and he's he was a no holds barred kind of a, a kind of a an artist and he was self taught and you could tell just with certain things but Robert Crumb I also I think he inspired future generations of cartoonists. I, I know that uh, Matt Growing um, from The Simpsons fame was a huge fan of his. Uh, so that's just one of those. You could uh, go for the After Dark series of your cartoon and, and talk about um, f uh, Fritz the Cat, a 1972 film. Um, it's definitely... One that uh, could be discussed, maybe along the lines of heavy metal, maybe. Um, two totally different types of animation, but again, it's just uh, just a thought. One last thought while I, uh, I uh, leave you is in film school, we learned about breaking down of, of, of just down to the single second. Now you have... 24 frames in a second. So, doing some quick math, that would be 
1,440 frames in a minute or 43,200 frames in a 30-minute short, like a television show, but it'd be a little bit shorter than 30 minutes, or 129,600 for a 90-minute feature film. That's a lot of drawings. I, I and, and I realize animation is different than 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 live action, um, but that's that's neither here nor there. That's just the amount of frames when you break it down to 24 frames in a given second. So to hand draw all those was quite the endeavor for these guys, and that's where I think the major appeal for me, being a fan of art and that film is the movement of art if you will call it that i i'm just i've been fascinated with it ever since i was a little kid cartoons just appealed to a broad audience and every saturday sunday morning i was an early bird and if it wasn't uh the three stooges or little rascals or laurel and hardy or charlie chaplin a lot of the the the, the classic cinema these these early cable channels would show cartoons and it was typically Hanna-Barbera or Popeye or you know Tom and Jerry any number of things over the years it's just been and now it's just through the roof there's there's just animation everywhere so I think that uh, you guys really have a good subject here and you guys are experts in 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 this field and I just can't wait to hear what you guys have to say uh, each and every time. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that and uh, we'll talk to you soon. And so, uh, in, in classic Greg fashion, that was very comprehensive. Yes, <laughs> and, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And it's, it's, thank you so much. I think I think having Greg Bench uh, leave a voicemail uh, sort of uh, justifies the existence. It of legitimizes this. it, right? Yeah, you know you're absolutely. legit when you get the Greg, the Greg voicemail before the podcast has even started. And exactly. he mentions. So many cartoons and there's cartoons from the seventies and from these, and it makes me realize, I think we're going to have, when we do these Saturday morning cartoon and I say Saturday morning, but they didn't always air on Saturday morning. We're going to have to do them almost in decade chunks, you know, but um, yeah. he mentioned Tom and Jerry. I, I remember watching a lot of Tom and Jerry and he, there is a new movie coming out and I think it's coming out maybe this, maybe next month 
or maybe the month after. I know it's got uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is in it, and it's that weird. He mentions in the in the voicemail there. It's a weird mixture of like live action and and humans, kind of like the Roger Rabbit or or Cool World. If you want to go back to Bakshi. <laughs> Um, that right. kind of sensibility. I don't know. How do you even feel about the fact that they're doing another, like is Tom and Jerry a concept that really works now? I I don't I... mean watching the old cartoons, but like making a new Tom and Jerry, are they going to capture? Cause part of enjoying Tom and Jerry was the, the never ending sort of meanness between those two, that sort of animosity. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you know what it's, you know what it's, it's when you think of the modern, uh, movies that have come out about animated characters it doesn't it doesn't make me it doesn't instill hope you know because you because you're talking about alvin and the chipmunks you're talking about the smurfs and i don't think the the movies were anywhere near the level of what the shows themselves were you know tom and jerry is interesting though because they've gone through several different with the cartoons anyway, weren't there some that were like sort of Eastern European? There were Tom and Jerry's that were done in Eastern Europe that had a very different feel than the Tom and Jerry's that were the the standard Tom and Jerry's. There were some that were done, and I don't know, I can't remember which ones they were, but there were at least two of them that I can recall that were done in Eastern Europe that the animation was just sort of a rougher style. And yet they're the ones I think of when I think of Tom and Jerry. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys remember them. Uh, there, there's, I remember there's one where this, that, that there was a guy, um, there, there was a male character, like a human character there who would always get angry with, with Tom uh in, in these in these cartoons god i wish i could remember which ones they were um but they were made in europe they were they were made in eastern europe um i don't know czechoslovakia or yugoslavia or something like that um that they had sort of farmed out tom and jerry to save money they gave them to these animation houses in eastern europe and yet for some reason, they're the most memorable Tom and Jerry's to me. <laughs> I, I got to say, I haven't seen them in 40 years, so I can't comment a lot on But I was going to say, but I do remember watching them as a kid and really enjoying just almost the slapstickness. It almost had that yeah. um, Wiley Coyote kind of element to it. where and, to- and, and Tom was always the coyote. No matter what, he was always the coyote. I don't think he ever got the better of anything in any of the cartoons, which I guess that's fine because Jerry was sort of the heroic character in them, but they were the, that was the same house that made droopy. Wasn't it? Was that MGM? I want to say, I know. Cause Warner yeah, had was, they were MGM, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but, but Jerry was a little sadistic too. I think I always oh, kind of yeah. felt like Tom, you know, Sometimes Tom's minding his own business. Jerry just wants to stir him up. There's also, and I don't know if these were the European ones or not, but the ones I mostly remember were like the um, the Three Musketeer ones, which would often end up with Tom getting his head chopped off, and Tom yeah. ended up in hell with an with a with a giant bulldog stabbing oh, him. Yes, I remember that pulling pulling him back into a pot of boiling water. 
Yes, I remember that. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Some really some some interesting uh, some interesting stuff there. So to answer your question about that, Greg, yes, we will do some Tom and Jerry, and I will. Absolutely. I'm sure I will see the movie because my kids want to see every animated movie, and we watched the Scooby Doo, both Scooby Doo movies that came out last year. So I'm sure we will see this one as well. I am not anticipating it per se, but I do like Chloe Grace Moretz, and I will give this a shot. So we'll, we'll see what happens with it. He also mentioned Crumb. Um, our Crumb, Robert Crumb, the the um, kind of indie underground comic book artist whose work, you know, Fritz the Cat was based off of. And uh, he mentioned specifically the documentary, and we had mentioned that a little earlier. Um, Dave, you mentioned about ter- ter- uh, Terry Zwigoff directing that, and that's that's a very interesting movie, and I think it would be fun to kind of talk about Crumb at some point, and some of these artists that sort of inspired um, the animation. And so, yeah, I, I am really looking forward to this. Do we want to go ahead and we will mention what's coming up next time? Uh, Dave, do you want to let everybody know what the and I will will uh, in a couple weeks, I will put this information up so you have it with the new short films and the new movies are. Dave, do you want to let everyone know what the short films are? And then I will introduce the main features for next time. Absolutely. Um, the short films that we're going to be looking at uh, are. Um actually centered around a uh, Canadian filmmaker by the name of Ryan Larkin. Uh, Ryan Larkin is a guy who in the late 60s and early 70s was making uh, animated shorts that were nominated for Academy Awards. And then later in life, uh, Ryan uh, Larkin ran into some uh, tough times. He ended up uh, panhandling. He ended up begging for change on the uh, streets of Montreal uh, until he was... um, I, I want to say uh, rediscovered by a filmmaker named Chris Land uh, Landreth, uh, an animated filmmaker. And uh, the two movies we're going to be looking at are Ryan from 2004, which is very interesting because the dialogue from that movie is an interview with Ryan Larkin conducted by uh, Chris Landreth. And then Ryan Larkin's uh, last animated movie, which was uh, called Spare Change. That Ryan Larkin, after um, you know running into Chris Landreth, got back into animation after many years later, but at the same time uh, discovered he had terminal cancer, and uh, Ryan Larkin did not survive. Uh, unfortunately, he has, he did pass on, um, to the and uh, spare change had to be finished by um, uh, Laurie Gordon is her name, uh, because Ryan Larkin had passed away before it was finished. Uh, But both of those are going to be the short films. I think Ryan uh, from 2004, again, directed uh, by Chris Landreth, uh, who also uh, is a character in it and narrates it, is probably my favorite animated short ever made. I think it's just brilliant. Uh, And then to sort of uh, cap it off with um, Spare Change, um, which Ryan uh, Larkin himself actually got to make before passing away, like his last work. Um, I'm really looking forward to sort of delving into both of those. And again, both of uh, they're both Canadian. Um, and um, I- I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing those. Yeah. And so, and that sounds a little heavy. I haven't seen either one of them. That sounds a little heavy. The two yeah. features we'll be doing next time are going to be a little bit lighter. And we've talked about, we do plan to cover a decent amount of, um, of, of anime films on the show. I will say that at least, I don't know about uh, Dave, but a lot of my exposure to anime 
is more of the films of Miyazaki and things like that and Satoshi Kon. And one of the directors I'm really interested in talking about is Makoto Shinkei, who did uh, early on, he did a really cool short film called Voices of a Distant Star. He did uh, a lot of features after that, including the places pro- the place promised to us in our early years. And he most recently did two films that I think are really good. And they are actually sort of younger audience um, uh, stories with a with a sort of romantic bent to them. And I think that would be perfect for February. We have Valentine's Day coming up. They're a little bit lighter, but they are both also science fiction stories. One of them is called Your Name. And the second one is just from this from from 2020, really. It was in 2019, but it got a release stateside here in early 2020. It's called Weathering With You. And both of these movies, I think they, I think their rating wise would be about a PG thirteen. I think actually, Weathering with You is PG thirteen. I uh, encourage everyone to check them out. We'll be talking about them next time. Yeah, I, I got to say, um, your name is brilliant. I, I think that might have even made my top twenty uh, the year it came out. It's one of those, uh, other than uh, you know uh, Satoshi Kon that you know you had mentioned who had done like Tokyo Godfathers and um, uh, Paprika and a lot of great movies. Your name is one of the only you know is is the one recent anime that approaches Miyazaki. You know, I, I don't know if it, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and argue whether it reaches that, that level that Miyazaki has set, that, that sort of um, the heights of Miyazaki, but it comes damn near. If it doesn't reach it, it comes damn near. You know, I, I absolutely loved your name. I haven't seen Weathering uh, with you, but I'm really looking forward to it um, because it's from the same uh, director for, of your name. And I can't wait to see it. He also did one fireworks. It wasn't fireworks. I think came in uh, between the two of those. I think it was right after your name and right before weathering with you, I think might've been uh, fireworks if I'm not mistaken. I think so. Um, and, and so we'll check that out next time. So that's all we have for the first episode. Uh, Dave, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, as we're closing up. No, just um, this was this was great. I had a lot of fun uh, talking about this, and I can't wait to um, to just sort of go deep uh, deep down into the rabbit hole and see what uh, uh, what we come up with. Um, you know, we've we've got two great movies to talk about and two great shorts to talk about on the next episode, and even we're just scratching the surface. I mean, you know, when we get into it, I mean, when you're looking at Lottie Renninger in the 1920s. Um, and, and then we're going to be talking about, uh, movies that came out within the last couple of years in the next episode. And we have everything in between to talk about, um, you know, we, with Disney and, and, and Pixar and DreamWorks and all of these, uh, you know, sort of mainstream. And then just, um, like we're seeing that the Saturday morning cartoons, I just can't wait to, um, to explore them all. I think this is a, a great idea and I thank you so much for uh, letting me be part of it. Yeah, I'm really excited. I got that we had a lot of fun here. Bill, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, not at all. I thank you for having me on. I appreciate everything that I've li- watched and heard and listened and every once in a while when I do come on it is an education. I do wish to be brought back on when you do the heavy metal episode and there is one idea that nobody's floated that I would love to have talked about and that's a particular Danish cartoon that we can talk about with Peter Nielsen about a large 
member of one of the characters. I think that would be an absolute blast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. We'll save that. Um, but you know what? I think the last thing I want to close out with, I do want, we mentioned this on the last, or we mentioned this on our um, first episode of the year, but I'm going to let Bill talk about this because when we decided to do the, the, the animation podcast, the idea is that we would do this once a month and that we have another sort of podcast one of the podcast that actually Bill himself is going to be sort of heading up as the primary host with a co-host. I want you to just uh, give Bill a minute to talk about that one because we're going to be recording that first episode in February. Yes. Well, we have one coming up where we're going to be discussing music and the stories that go in music and their songs. So everybody knows songwriters that can weave a good tale. And in the prog rock and the rock and roll and in the singer-songwriter category, there is lots of songs out there that tell a long journeyed story. Well, I want to deep dive into that as well. So we're going to have Dave probably come on for one or two. Uh, Nathan will kind of be like me and just kind of be in the background for some of them. We'll bring various guests on. We still have to come up with a name. But if anybody here has any ideas about a song, a concept album, an artist to de delve deep into, kind of the way Dave does on his solo cast when he jumps into somebody, I think, I don't know if it'll be a full two-hour episode of anything, but it could be supplemental to uh, Phantom Galaxy. So if you have any ideas, please send them to myself. Please send them to the page. Please send them to Nathan. And we really want to get some ideas. If anybody out there is, an, is a musician, please give us a shout because I can tell you what a song sounds like, but I can't tell you a, a D flat from a B minor. And did you mention your co-host over there for that uh, well, my, show? Well, my co-host for the first show will be Dave Waugh. Dave Roy, as many people will know him as. And I'm sure we'll have him on often. And I don't know if we're going to make it a permanent one or if he comes on every so often. But we're always looking for people who enjoy music. And Dave really, really knows his stuff. So I'm very, very excited for it. And bring your ideas, bring your music, bring your enthusiasm, and let's bring it on. Yes, and you. And I'm, I'm waiting to see the name of that. Anyway, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. We will see you next time on the, this will be the Illustrated Fan as a part of the Phantom Galaxy. Until that time, uh, this is Nathan Bartleball and Dave Becker and Bill Van Vagel signing out. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.